on today's show, we are getting to know Jim. But first, a word from today's sponsors. Andre Psyche is the freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up on any social media. It's Andre Psyche. That's P-S-Y-C-H-E. The next time you are looking to add some creative stimulation to your social media circle. Patreon.com helps creators like me earn a monthly income that will be put towards podcast expenses. Support the Getting to Know You Pod's creative endeavors through Patreon for as little as $2 a month. There are all sorts of costs that I had no fucking idea about associated with posting podcasts, not to mention the need for equipment and production. So dear listeners, if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests or just want to help keep the pod going, go to our Patreon. The link's in the description and your support of the Getting to Know You pod is very much appreciated. Two bucks too much? Here are three free ways to help. Get your thumbs ready. One, push the subscribe button on whatever app you're listening to the Getting to Know You pod on. Did that? Thank you. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on your social media like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Go ahead, open those apps, click away if you haven't already. Thanks again. Three, go to Apple, write a review. The internet tells me this might be the most important and impactful. So thank you. Your support, dear listener, whether it's with your thumbs through our Patreon or ideally both, is greatly appreciated. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely and doggone it. Who I'm going to try to call Nako the entire time. And apparently you are one of the baddest motherfuckers that will be on this podcast as of yet, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to let people get to know you. I really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you reaching out. Uh, it's always good to uh, meet different people, uh, whether virtually or in person. So the pleasure and honor is all mine thank you so much yeah and it's it's funny because whatever we're chatting for 10 minutes and like immediately it's like oh yeah you were born in new york and you used to come to delaware and oh i'm familiar with biden i'm actually on a detail that he's going to be a part of in a couple of days because he's leaving delaware and it's so weird because there's no way whatever six weeks ago when i asked you to come on that we know that's going to be one of the weird connections you're on the west coast i'm on the east coast and yet Joe Biden connects us. <laughs> yes, yes. If you just got to pull that thread and there's a commonality. So when you think you have so much not in common with someone, you really have a lot in common. Yeah. You just don't know it yet. Yeah, it's and that's part of what I like doing this podcast um, about. And you have a podcast and you have a million things. I've, the, the, I've found you, I think, on a Jocko Willick comment and that's kind of what I do. I go to people who get a ton of comments and I just sporadically message, hey, do you want to come on the podcast? And that's 
just how I try to find a random assortment. And then I start going through your social media when you say yes. And um, you're intimidating. You are quite an accomplished <laughs> individual. Yeah, I don't know about that. But uh, yeah, um, I've, yeah, I get to gotten to do a lot of interesting things and met a lot of interesting people. And that's definitely my, my wealth in life is uh, my friends and experiences. So, so I, I don't know if this matters to you or not, but it's something that's very passionate to me. And I'm extremely jealous of you, and I've been trying to be very nice, but secretly I hate you because <laughs> um, S.E. Hinton follows you on Twitter, which I didn't know until I followed you on Twitter, like, whatever, an hour ago. Mm -hmm. Do you have any idea why she follows you on Twitter? Yes. Uh, one of my, uh, it's basically my, you know, my blood brother that's not blood. Uh, his name is uh, Danny Boy O'Connor. He started the band House of Pain. Oh, and shit. yeah, jump around, all that good stuff. It's Speaking about Irish dudes from New York yeah, City. Right. Oh well, his um his uh he had a huge connection to the book The Outsiders and the movie. So I don't know how many years now it's been, like say eight years. And uh it became um I became aware that how enamored he was of, you know, Susie Hinton in the book and everything else. So I reached out to Susie via email, explained who I was and uh, who Danny was. And uh, she just happened to be in Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles, um, for some kind of um, event or whatever. And uh, she said, yeah, oh, yeah, come by the hotel. And um, I went to surprise Danny with getting him an um, autographed copy of The Outsiders. So I met with Susie, and she was super gracious. He's a true crime fan and police fan and what have you. And... I told her my connection to the outsiders and we just had a great time and kept in contact. And then obviously then she followed me on Twitter. We became friends and Denny became uh, friends with her, really good friends. And then fast forward a couple of years, he actually opened up a museum called the outsiders house museum in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the movie was filmed and the book took place. So he's like the unofficial mayor of Tulsa right now, because obviously the outsiders, is uh, you know every kid in America pretty much had to read that book at sixth to seventh grade, so it's got a built-in fan base across the nation, let alone the world too. It's a book that's never been out of print. So, yeah, Susie Hinton's awesome. Whenever she does an event at the Outsiders House Museum, I'm her um, bodyguard for the event because she gets mobbed and she's not an author. You know, this you know like solitary lifestyle, so she doesn't want to deal with crowds and all that. So. I'm a little of a, I'm a buffer, so it's it's pretty wild. Dude, that is hilarious. I, she um put me in my place. I've been tweeting at her so often <laughs> to try to have her on the pod, and she just is oh, the yeah. best sassy put you in your place <laughs> tweeter if she wants to be. And yes. I, so I'm a seven, well, I'm a middle school reading specialist, and part of our curriculum seventh grade was The Outsiders. It recently changed, and the teachers were super pissed because we're like. Do you not know that kids absolutely love this book? Like it's, it's one of, it really has become an American rite of passage where mm -hmm. you read it and you connect and you understand like this class warfare. And anyway, I like, I, because of that, I had no idea she was on Twitter. I search her right. up and I'm like, she is an active, active tweeter. Like she right. holds no punches and she gives zero fucks and i yes. love it and i tell the kids this and they're like wait the the 
everyone thinks it's a guy because of the S dot E thing. And right. you're like, no, dude, it's a lady. What? And then, you know, they start understanding like, yeah, Pony Boy, can you see maybe why she had to do that back then? And like, he's very emotional and maybe that was part of the insight. And anyway, they're like, but she's on Twitter? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, dude, yes. like she loves her some, it seems like she loves her some Twitter. So that's amazing that you're part of her bodyguard and you have a connection to the Tulsa um, Museum. Yes. Yes, it's a it's an amazing place, and um, everyone, if they're a fan of the book or movie, should definitely make the pilgrimage. And it, the city itself is really it's on the move. It's one of those cities like you know, like Austin became, and then Nashville, like Tulsa's in that same lane where it's uh, in the route of exploding. So, very special place. What um, why the strong connection with? Danny, I don't want to like miscategorize him and his relation to you because <laughs> you had said like kind of blood brother. Um, yeah, yeah, he, uh, you know, same connection. I, um, you know, you, there's always that one character you really identify with. So uh, the character of uh, that Matt Dillon played, you really uh, related to that. Of, Dallas. You know, when you're in that coming of age, yeah, of seeing that guy, that, he was a New Yorker coming in with the leather jacket, smoking. He just looked like a rough and tough tumble guy. And then coming from a broken family where you don't have that father figure and you gravitate toward that tribe. So you got that crew of guys that you want to belong to because you don't really fit in. You're the outsider, you know, you're that greaser. And that's exactly, you know, his, how he came up and uh, come, he moved from New York to LA. So he had that little bit of a disconnect with, you know, uh, not belonging. So that became like a, you know, surrogate you know when you see that movie you're like wow that's kind of how i feel that's who i want to be that that tough guy that you know could take on the system that's rebellious so he had an affinity for that like like uh like i did and so many other you know teenagers and connected with that and the rest was history the the thing we always have to slow kids down with when they're reading at least again in southern delaware with um dallas winston is he gets the rough and tumble like image, but he's almost bipolar extremes of sensitive with how much he loves Johnny and mm -hmm. how he's the toughest of the toughest. I'm gonna go get a shootout. I'm gonna go get myself killed. I'm the greaser of greasers. I'm the gangster of gangsters. And it's like, yeah, but he's also the most sensitive one. He's also the one that's most aware of how he hates this lifestyle and how he fights basically to try to prevent Johnny from coming this way and how he's jealous of pony boy's relationship that he has a family that he has a blood tribe not just a friendship tribe like and when you start pointing that out to kids they're like why i thought he was just supposed to be the hard guy that was like isn't a criminal not supposed to have feelings and you're like or are they criminals because the way they deal with these emotions they just struggle with coping and they lash out and it really leads to kids just connecting in their lives about holes, things that are missing within them, and then maybe like choices that because they're missing someone to keep them accountable, because they're missing someone that they feel they need to look after, that they do stupid things. <laughs> and it's like really interesting conversations. And I forget, I think the book was written in the 50s, maybe? Maybe the 60s? I want to say it was... Um... Wasn't Maybe the late 70s. 60s, but it, was, it created the 
there was never um, like a youth-based genre. I forgot young. They called young adult YA, yeah. young adult, and that kicked that off. And they they kept it S.E. Hinton because they didn't think that predominantly male readers would gravitate or buy off on a book that was kind of about street kids if it was written from a female perspective. Yeah, and I know. And you know, the '60s being a man's world, and you know, you know, it's almost to this day it's been changing rapidly. That they're like, yeah, we'll just keep you as S.E. Hinton. And so, yeah, so many people, even to this day, have no idea that she's a, a female, which is kind of wild. Yeah. But not, I'm good just, observation, though, about Dally. Yeah, 1967, The Outsiders. Um, so I guess I'm thinking of it a little earlier. Um, I feel like the movie, for some reason, portrays it as, like, earlier than 67. I don't know why. But, yeah. Oh, yeah, the time period, for sure, is yeah. in the 50s. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's why I'm thinking of that. The, the music, the leather jackets, yeah, it's still... You know, that uh, Elvis kind of era, I'd say, yeah. when he first kicked off. But the fact that, se like, 70 years post-setting, kids in 2020 are connecting to a character in the 50s and relating, man, is, um, I don't know, it's, it's an amazing thing. And when I got to your Twitter and I saw that she followed you, I was just like, that can't be true. <laughs> <laughs> and like you actually get to hang out with her. And so when she goes to Tulsa, like you just fly out there out of the kindness of your heart or that's like a side gig of yours doing like personal protection. No, Well, she, she lives in Tulsa. She's never, she's never moved from there. She's like the queen of Tulsa. But when I go to hang out with Danny, since he doesn't live, he used to live in LA. He moved out there to do the museum full time. So I go out there uh, like every couple of months to hang out with him. And then if he has an event that, that she's going to be at, I'll, I'll make that my hang time where, you know, I'm staying at his house and then, you know, providing uh, providing service for Susie. So, gotcha. I mean, she gave so much to the world and myself with her book. So it's the very least I could do. That's so humble of you. <laughs> You know, you know what? I, I learned that from him. Um, Danny's very open about sobriety. He's uh, been sober for many years. And I've had family members and friends um, that are followers of the 12 step. And the biggest thing is uh, be of service. So I learned that from, from their example of, you know, when someone asks you to do a podcast, someone asks to ride for, to, the, to the airport, someone does, a, you know, need help to move, you know, you take that step back and you breathe like, damn, I don't want to do that. I have to be of service. That's what a true friend is. Like anyone could be a friend of, hey, we're going to the movies, we're going to drink, we're going to a restaurant. Those are associates. I say until you become, you overcome resistance and earn that title of, uh, of friendship, that's when you become a friend. So resistance can be in whatever forms, like um, a couple gets divorced and then you got to make a choice of, oh, I'm going to be with the, the husband or the wife to pick a friend and no one, you know, say the husband screwed up and uh it's unpopular to stay friends with him like no that's my guy no matter how many bows and arrows i take i'm gonna stick with him and you overcame resistance or the same thing with what i said about making those hard decisions you're like wow on a sunday night the last thing i want to do is drive to the airport and pick someone up but like that's what a true friend does so until you meet the, in my eyes anyway until you meet check off those boxes of, of going above and beyond that's when you are a real friend and uh, you love somebody. So that's what I learned from him and, and many others in that, in that lane. So I credit all that to them. You just made me realize how incredibly selfish I am. Cause I'm always like fighting <laughs> to go for jogs 
And like, I almost hold that time as somewhat sacred to myself. Mm -hmm. And I, you're, you're right, man, because the initial reaction is when someone or when someone needs help, you want to like go with your gut and think about at least me, I'm going to miss out on blank, whether it's I want to relax, I'm going to miss out on my workout, I'm going to miss out on my jog, I'm going to miss out on I really want to see the next season of whatever. I, and I'm going to eat like crap, whatever it is. Um, but the fact that you're willing to sacrifice your own, um, I don't know, your own time, your own desires for somebody, that would be a friendship. I like that friendship over acquaintance. I think that's a, that's a very, I don't know, very wise mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, try, you know, through the years, it wasn't always like that, but <laughs> you just, the more I surrounded myself with positive individuals and, and, uh, really loving people, uh, that weren't negative and were doing great things in life, the more, the, you know, the better I became as a person. So I say, you know, like they, they say that you're the combination of your five closest associates. So pick or your friends, whoever you're with. So pick those people wisely because by osmosis, you know, more than likely, whether you're a kid, an adult or whatever, you're going to soak up what they say and do for the most part, you know? And uh, so if you got a great tribe around you, it's, It'll rub itself off and you're going to be great as well. Yeah, there was, um, it, it was a social, it was a stupid social media meme. And I want to give credit to Denzel Washington for saying it, where he's like, if you're around five geniuses, you'll be the sixth. If you're around five millionaires, you'll be the sixth. And if you're around five idiots, you'll be the sixth. And I was like, <laughs> that, that's why I'm on Facebook for just daily reminders about, hey, let's remember your company matters because the conversations drive you and you see it with kids talk, they're just connecting and thinking about the outsiders and like the need for that positive influence, positive direction. Even like if I have a daughter, she's 12 and the fact that like her peer groups are all very similar where it's like, they're kind of goal and schedule driven. Like, Hey, you want to mm -hmm. be an athlete? Cool. Well, are you working on it or do you just show up? Did you prepare? Are you getting a good night's sleep the night before? Right? Are you eating well? And like those are similar conversations with all of her friends' parents where me being a school teacher, I know some kids like roll out of bed and just show up. And mm -hmm. yeah, you can be kind of effective, but that's not probably the best life habit to be developing and building. And you spend the night with those people and like you have sleepovers and you're, you're st I'm starting to realize too, like that peer group really influences what you feel is your right. It calibrates you, you know, and it's Absolutely. your normal. It keeps keeps you honest you know when you're not doing the right thing and people are like yo you know what's up you know yeah. you, what's wrong with you you know if you have good friends i'll call you out on your bs you know yeah like, hey you have been showing up what are you being a lazy bastard come on let's go <laughs> and then you're like yeah okay we're doing <laughs> I, it haven't <laughs> seen you haven't seen you in the gym in about three weeks man what's up <laughs> yeah when so when one of your buddies say hey you know what you're getting a little bit of a gut like man that's that's everything. You're like, wow, I am. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's do that. Be, be honest. You know, don't, don't insult, but say that have a place in love. You're like, Hey, not for nothing, but yeah. X, Y, Z. Yeah. It, and it's good. And that, that's the, the weird part of discipline is you can, you want to seek accountability because it makes discipline easier. I feel because mm -hmm. then it's not just on you, you know, you'll hear about it and it makes it, um, I don't, I don't know if I'm like the most disciplined person, but being around people who are in charge of things, you notice the way they think and the way they look at 
oh, he shows up all the time. Oh, he's always on time. Oh, he's always prepared. And like people in charge, <laughs> that really matters. And I've never really been in charge of a ton. I've only been in charge of kids. But then as my career progresses, I start to like, I don't know if I'm a supervisor, but I'm, I'm my opinion, I go to meetings. <laughs> I have to talk about what I see. And like, that really matters when they're like, yeah, always prepared. Oh, always has a plan, always has a lesson plan. And you get around that and it just warps your mentality. And then that's what you want to do versus the complainers who just want to complain about how bad stuff is. You're like, yeah, all right, well, what's the, what's the solution? What's the, what's the fix? And they never get there. Yes. They're, just, they're happy complaining. It's uh, I don't enjoy that, um, that company at all. Yes. Yeah. Negativity is definitely contagious and positively positive, positive mindset is also contagious. So um, it's, uh, and I'm sorry, man, I'm just kind of like philosophically ranting. Cause I'm still a little taken back with Essie Hinton. Um, and your <laughs> like actual personal, personal connection, um, with her. Do you mind now that I'm a terrible podcast host and we're almost 20 minutes in, do you mind giving just a little background? Cause I'm curious how you present yourself based on what I see you as having like 18 different titles through your social media. Oh boy. That's a good question. I'm just, uh, trying to be the best person I can every day and trying to lead by example. And it's a work in progress. It took a long way to get here, which is probably low average uh, to average on a good day. And living, like I said, living a life of service, it comes in many different forms. And I started my career as, uh, as a police officer back at the age of the wise old age of 21 years. Oh God. And do you remember that year when for, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like 21, when you just knew everything about the world and you knew exactly <laughs> how life would work out and you knew you were going to be in charge. Like you could control the sun's rising and setting at 21. It's funny every once in a while, cause the lag sucks with whatever zoom Google meets and you try to like interject and I, it, the internet will cut off and it's like, that's the universe telling me, shut up, Sean, let them talk. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry to have interrupted you and caused us to disconnect, but. Oh, no, pr no I, problem. So you got into police officer at 21. Yes. That's the earliest you can get into you, the industry. So, so yeah. So yeah, I thought I had the world figured out and rapidly learned that, it would take me another maybe a couple of decades or so to somewhat figure it out. But I think even if you're in your 40s, when you're in your 50s, you think, wow, the 40s, you had no idea. And I think it's every decade, probably, you'll be thinking about, wow, I did some really dumb things. I wore some horrible clothes. I said some <laughs> horrible things. I think, I think that's just how life is. I don't know. I'll have to ask some people that are in their 60s and 70s, like, do you think you haven't figured out yet? So, Yeah, and then they would just laugh at you to be like, Duh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you never figure out life, stupid. No. Because it evolves. No, no... Right? Like it changes. It's funny. Like I see it as a parent where I – things that I missed out on, I want my daughter to have. And by default, then she's not going to have the same experience and she's going to value different things. And then she's going to try to get whatever she didn't have, I would assume, and provide that with to her kids. You know? So like – the right. influence of the people around you, I've almost like by default makes the world 
change, you know, that you interact with. Absolutely. Why? Absolutely. Why did you want to be a cop at 21? Uh, part of it was same kind of um, kind of the you know the outside his vein of um, growing up as a single child, um, divorced parents, and I was always you um, yearning for that brotherhood at a, at a young age, and my my natural ability is always best with. Um, like either starting a group or being in like second or third of second man of a group and like a small, small unit of guys. So basically like a, um, would it be like, you know, like a squad of people. So for some reason I always just gravitated toward that. And I was kind of growing up, you know, the protector of, of people of, you know, if you're going to be in, um, if you, if there's a bully, it's like, no, we're going to protect we're going to protect the kids that were being bullied and we're going to bully the bullies type of thing. We're going to, we're going to take them out. So there was always that protective gene and looking back through like family lineage, it was just in our DNA of, of um, always going forward and, and being in the fight, but on the right side. So that was just, that was just my destiny to be, uh, to be in charge of a group of individual like-minded group of individuals with a similar goal that wanted to do good. So law enforcement fit perfectly. I didn't want to work behind a desk. Uh, I didn't want to be indoors. I uh, wanted to do something that was physical and it just fit me like a glove. So at a very young age, like 12, 11, I was like, right, this is what I want to do. This is, this is my people. Did you consider military or why not maybe go I did. military? Yeah, my best buddy, who got me to uh, come out here to LA? We were supposed to join the uh, military at the same time, like the buddy program. Oh yeah! And one of you guys was going <laughs> to get like a bonus for bringing the other, right? Like you'd get an extra five grand or something, or was it not back then? I don't think there was a. Yeah, it was just more of um, maybe there was, but I wasn't privy to it. You know, it wasn't a he was literature <laughs> heard about yeah, the buddy program. If you both go in and sign up, you could you could you know be with your best friend in boot camp. So me and him were inseparable. I played in a band with him. He was the drummer. I was a guitarist. So we're like, all right, let's do it. And uh, funny story, we're talking with the recruiter. And uh, my, uh, my buddy, uh, Bill, his name is an awesome dude, but he hated getting up early. So <laughs> with these two knucklehead 17-year-old kids, um, he's asking the recruiter, I think it was a Marine Corps guy. He's like, yeah, no, it was an Army guy. Uh, he said... Uh, yeah, this whole thing, the military thing sounds great, but uh, I know you guys get up early in the morning. He goes, is there some kind of like night army or something? <laughs> and I'm looking at him like this, like, wow, did you really just ask that? And the, the army guy thinks we're messing with him. He's like, are you being fucking serious? <laughs> it's like, no, there's no goddamn night army. You're going to get up early every day, no matter what. And he's like, hmm, oh, that doesn't... I don't know if that's going to work with me. So long story uh, longer, we, uh, he didn't want to sign up. And then, you know, I, we were inseparable at that time. So I was like, all right, if you're not signing up, I'm not signing up, which it kind of, it, it eats at me to this day a little bit, but then it, uh, it was right after the Gulf war. So, uh, it was peacetime and more than likely we wouldn't have seen any action. And, um, uh, 
talking to the guys that I know that were in the military during peacetime. They said it was horrible and they ignored on them that they never got to to do anything, you know, of, of what they were trained for. So it all works out in the end, you know. So um, yeah. ended up going to college and just waiting until I turned 21. So I was reading, um, well, I am reading Malcolm Gladwell's, I think it's called Bombers. I forget the title. Are you familiar with Malcolm Gladwell? Like I read the outliers. Yeah, outliers, tipping point. I think one of them is like talking to a dog. I, super interesting Canadian guy. So, the bombers. I think is his latest book, maybe a year or two old. But the he gets into how we started dropping bombs, and in essence, we started wanting to drop bombs accurately to avoid military deaths and the deaths of just people senseless. Like we can win a war without millions and millions of people dying on a battlefield. And part of the early chapter that he gets into, which I never considered was like the military man, the Marine might see action during war once a month, they might battle. Uh, um, A Navy man might see something on the water once every six months, but a bomber, an air force pilot is like daily, every 24 hours. And it just stresses them out. And it's one of those things where I had not considered, I served in National Guard after 9-11. So we almost got deployed, but I actually had to stay back. Um, I had security clearance issues. (laughs) And you go from your one weekend a month and you're feeding and you're working on things that involve hundreds of people to there's five people. It's like, I guess we can polish tanks (laughs) like yeah let's go do some preventive maintenance and oil changes again yeah let's take inventory and it sucks i couldn't imagine Mm -hmm. being deployed overseas and you're in a tent and it's like yeah man it's been over for a year now but we're hanging out just in case like but that's life that's the life of the military they there's hundreds of thousands of people that just sign up to do that and it's a crazy sacrifice but it's also boring as hell for action junkies who are like, I want to fight wrong. Right. <laughs> and would, that's a very real yourself. Yeah, right. Like it's, I don't know, was it for you like so much of a manhood transition when you say prove yourself or did you just want to see what you were made of? Like, did you feel tough and you were like, I want to find out if I am this dude that runs towards the fight and not away? What about as far as joining the armed forces or yeah. doing what I'm doing now? No, well, yeah, when you were back then deciding and seeking that adventure. That's, yeah, that's a great word, adventure. That's exactly what it was. You know, you're in this, I was in New York City, you know, it's a big town, but it's still small, still a small town in your mind anyway. So you're like, one, you want to get away from your parents, <laughs> you know, to see, you know, adventure, go on that extended adventure that you, you know, crave that probably everyone that Wonder lost and then three of following in the footsteps of, you know, your father, your uncle, uh, grandfather, great-grandfather, you know, yeah, that whole lineage. And then seeing, and then there's that part of, yeah, you what this is like, you heard all these stories as a kid, and it sounded, you know, you only hear, like, the good things of, yeah. oh, and then we did this, and then we did that, and then I was in a firefight, and um, so my old man was a ranger, he said, like, right before he his last week in Vietnam, he volunteered his last week before he was about to gate out and go back to the world. Um, he was trying to play it a little bit safe. Like, wow, I literally have seven days left and, uh, they're in a firefight 
and uh, they had a Canadian bagpiper with them for some reason. They had a, like a Canadian attachment, and this guy had the bagpipes, and he just stood up in the middle of fire and just started uh, blaring off the bagpipes. And my father got all charged up, like you can't not hear the bagpipes and go berserker mode. So he hears the bagpipes and he's like, "Fuck it, I got seven days, but I'm getting after it." And goes, you know, charging down range. And so I hear all these great stories of like, I, I want to do that, I see what that's like. And but it would, I don't know if it was a proving yourself thing, but it was just I would experience that as well. It almost goes back to what you were saying about influences. Just what's your circle like? And if mm -hmm. that's the value of your circle and if that's your normal, it, you would grow up being like, oh, that's what these men did in my life. So if I'm going to be a man, I need to do that. I would think like on some real basic level. Absolutely. It's um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you're a fighter. And then as you get older, you learn like uh, like Dali of like the more you the more you fight. The, the more you're suppressing within sometimes. So opening up more when you find out, you know, people that are uh, honest with their feelings and, and they're not being looked down upon and they're being upheld. And then you are like, okay, wow, I say I can, I, I can express myself and, and show vulnerability and, um, and be more open. And that's a man is also that as well. And so I learned, you know, later on in life, those, other male figures of, of trying to be better in different ways. Like tough isn't tough as, you know, sometimes it's just a mask. It's just a coat yeah. of armor to yield and tough means so many different things in so many different ways. So I don't personally know or have chatted with too many police officers. I, I think I've only had one on the podcast. She was actually out from California. Um, and she Mulaney, um, I believe the San Francisco area, coined the term post-traumatic stress injury instead of disorder because she liked injury because it focused on the healing more so than like disorder or disability, post-traumatic stress. Yeah, disorder, disability. Because she was like, then you can't come back from it. But she was talking about her experiences of like, she would roll up on a scene and you're giving CPR to a six-month-old that dies in your lap. And she, she's like, what do I do with these feelings? And as a cop, she's like trying to go to people like, dude, I do not feel right. Like I am not ready for action. And she was met with a bunch of resistance to her emotions about like, you're fine, get out there, take the day off, come back tomorrow. And I'm curious mm -hmm. from your perspective, because the stereotype is that's why cops drink, to suppress their feelings, right? They, get, they go on a hard day's work, then they get drunk to kind of forget about it all. I'm curious for you, what were you... Was it like open with you and your squad, with you and people, or was it kind of hard to find that willingness to be open about emotions and what you're experiencing? Oh, it was next to impossible. I mean, just the, the way you grow up as a, as a man, you just weren't taught to cry or express yourself. You just, it was all, you know, suck it up and just move on, which a lot of times you do. You just don't have time to deal with those emotions as a, as a time and place for that you uh, thrust into positions where you're not afforded that luxury and that, that's fine. But at some point, uh, talking about that tipping point, there's going to be a tipping point. So your glass is empty. And then as you get more and more of those negative experiences, it's rapidly getting uh, more full and eventually that glass is going to tip over. So you have to be cognizant of that and eventually you got to empty it appropriately. So as the years have gone on, um, 
the profession as a whole has been uh, slowly more embracing, you know, um, uh, talk therapy, um, you know, expressing your emotions with people, uh, understanding all the signs and symptoms. You know, that's one of the good things with the this forever war that we're in. You know, so many returning veterans uh, having issues, and then as a society, we just had to tackle that. So that propels itself in other industries such as mine, and then we have a huge influx of returning veterans that are in our community. So they're more apt to deal with the, like the VA system and go to therapy and deal with all these sorts of problems. So they brought that to our industry, which is a good thing. And so it's not looked down upon as it used to be. I mean, there's a lot of work we have to do and it's getting there slowly, but surely, but we're in the right direction. But yeah, in the nineties and early two thousands, you know, especially when I was, I was working at NYPD during that era. And it's just, it was so many, um, so many of those memories are just so suppressed because I squashed them down. And it's just, it's almost like a blank slate in my mind of only when I speak to other guys that were there and they'll bring, they'll say, Hey, remember you did this or we saw this, or I, this time, one time I did that. And it'll, it'll bring back and trigger a memory. I'm like, Oh wow, I did that. Or that's right. We did do that. And, because it just had a, I squashed it and it came out in other ways of, you know, excessive drinking and, and other self-destructive ways. And that's all it is. Yeah. Alcohol is a depressant. So you're just trying to depress those feelings and then it just makes it worse. So that's how I try to uh, teach my guys and people around me just by example of like, yeah, that's one way to do it, but here's, there's a multitude of other ways that are way better. And I, I wish I had that, those tools down, you know, way back when, but we're learning that the mind is just a tool and sometimes it breaks. So you go to that, you know, psychiatrist, that mind mechanic, and sometimes it just takes a little tune up. Sometimes yeah, it's like leaving your car in the shop and it has to be there for two weeks and then, and then so on. So there's no, uh, there's no shame in uh, looking for help and in actuality it's a strength. So, you know, you, unless you're driving around on a flat tire, that's what it basically is when you're, right. your mind is, you're only going to go so fast and so far. So, yeah, you want those frontline workers with their minds and bodies as sharp as they can be. Something that had kind of um, pissed me off. There was this thing going around Delaware where like cops were caught napping and like they yes. get posted and the pictures get to like, taxpayer dollars wasted cops now and i'm like have you ever just sat around and waited after a 12-hour shift for action and then immediately you got to spring up like maybe he needs like a five ten minute let's get my mind right nap maybe he just left something that was crazy and he's resetting his mind i'm like it was so clickbaity that it really yes. pissed me off because i do you have you been in that situation did you like maybe not tap on his window to freak him out, but did you think about asking him, sir, why, why are you napping? What just happened? You know, to be open. And it got seen as a weakness where I saw it as a strength of like, dude, I want you rested. Cause when yes. you're, the call comes in, I need you fully. If it's my call, if you're running towards me to help me in my moment of need, I want you at 100. I do not want you drained at 25. Yeah, I mean, you just flip the title to a doctor. It's like, do you want your doctor to catch a couple of Z's while he's on a break, or do you want him to 
power on through a 12 hour shift. Yeah. And when he's operating on you, he's half baked. Yeah. Like, no, he's got rest of <laughs> but you know, it's just that the society we live in, everything's very controversial with uh, the police right now. And yeah. I understand the reasons why. So I just framed that in a different, in a different way. Like I just did now, like, do you want the doctor exhausted or do you want him rested? And, and then, you know, people kind of get it. I, yeah, I would tell my guys, I'm like, if you're tired, please pull over and go to sleep. Because I've been in a car with my partner where usually it was like, all right, we're going to, we would drive, we were like sharks. We would just never stop. And uh, so I, if I was the passenger, like, hey, Steve, I'm going to take a couple of Zs, you know, I, I would know when something's going on and I immediately spring up. And uh, he's like, okay, I got this. So we drive around. I just kind of close my eyes and, and um, you know, take a little cat nap. And then one day I woke up, you know, when you know that feeling something's wrong and I look over to the left and it was like, it was like Chevy Chase and National Lampoon's vacation when he's driving the family and he's asleep and he's like, you know, basically all he had, he's missing was a pillow and my, my partner Steve's fully asleep and, you know, with like his mouth, mouth wide open. And I look over and I, I knee him or I, I elbow him right in the gut. I'm like, wake up, asshole, like grab the wheel. And we were like just centimeters away from wiping out, you know, hitting a subway uh pillar and uh so i'm like i'm like dude what the hell and he's like i didn't even know right. he's just driving he just body just gave out he, you know he just fell asleep and he didn't even realize he wasn't trying to like muscle through yeah but, but it I, just happens so so dangerous for you know shift workers and yeah i do 100 and like i think that's a healthy just like the hey seek counseling if you know something's wrong with your mind you can also sense when something's wrong with your body and you're like, dude, I just need 20. If I can take 20 now, I'll be good for the next whatever, four, six, eight hours. But I need 20 yeah. right now. And I just wonder letting your body reset, even like a cell phone or a computer, when something's jacked up, what is the IT department? First thing they tell you, did you restart it? Yeah. <laughs> did you power it off and power it back on? And to me, like that's a very healthy way to deal with life and stress is quick nap, man. Get your body at ease, mm -hmm. recharge. Yeah, that's it's super important for the people around you too. If you have a good boss, good supervisor of being really connected to your people. So when you see them exhibiting behavior that's unlike them and the stress or whatever it is that's taking its toll to ask those questions like, hey, dude, what's, what's going on? You seem different. And then probing. And then you're like, you know what? You need a couple of days um, out of the field. Why don't you take a couple of vacation days? Uh, why don't you, you know, sit inside tonight or whatever it is of being cognizant of your people because you're going to be your own best, you know, your number one fan. You're like, no, no, I don't need to take off or I don't need a break. I could drive. I could do it. I can muscle through it. And you're just so wrapped up in your mind and you don't realize it takes someone from the outside. So you not only have to be cognizant of yourself, but others around them, around you. So it's very important, especially in, you know, fields such as that. Well, yeah, because you, it's very weird. As a teacher, we get taught about kids being in that fight or flight mode. It's something as basic as like publicly being told to be quiet. Like if a kid is chit chatting with another kid and you say, hey, Timothy, I need you to be quiet. But you do it in front of 30 people, the kid's triggered. And all of a sudden they're in like survival mode. And I yes. think of my days and I never was deployed. I remember basic training and like going into the field and it was exhausting to be on 
and it was just like a two hour thing and you knew you were going to get a break and you knew it was fake. And like it, it, I was depleted at 20, 21 years old. And you think about police officers and you think about military people and you have to be on for your entire shift. You never know. And like, I don't know if enough people understand what that can do to your body. I see it wig kids out. Like you got to approach a kid differently because they will spaz out. And you're like, yo, dude, like a 12 year old boy will like start cursing you out or like wanting to throw a desk. You're like, dude, all I need you. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have asked you to be quiet. But like that emotional state that, that like a frenzied state is, um, something a lot of people don't experience on the daily <laughs> as a way to right. make a living. And I think if they like had a dose of it, they would understand why, I don't know, cops are stressed out. <laughs> Their patience is worn. Yeah, down. I mean, just just working, not only the job, but just, just the pure hours of when you're encountering someone in that state of mind. And, and it works the other way. Like, um, I uh, run a fugitive warrant squad, so we're knocking on, knocking down doors at very early hours, you know, four or five in the morning. And anyone that gets woken up involuntarily is in a bad mood. So I have to overcome those that resistance of someone, you know, barking at me, taking it personally. I'm like, no, they just got woken up. They're scared. Someone in their family is getting arrested. Um, put yourself in their shoes. So when they're going nuts and, you know, taking it out on us, uh, one of the ways I tell them, I'm like, hey, um, hey, this is what we do. We have a job. This is why we're here. It's nothing against you. But I 100% understand how you're feeling. I, you, you know, if someone woke me up and did X, Y, Z, I'd be very pissed and, and uh, in your same position. But that said, we're, you know, we're here because we, you know, have a warrant for this person's arrest. And we have to we have to do our job. So if you could help me with that, I'd really appreciate that. And that and that really deflates the situation. Just to be to show that empathy and yeah. and then and verbally tell them that in a way of why they're feeling that instead of saying no, you got to do it my way. Or, this yeah. is this is this is the uh, you do what I say when I say it. And that's just going to give you even more resistance. Yeah, so escalating. Explaining is, yeah, explaining yourself and empathizing in any situation goes a long way. Is that just your life experience or is that books you read, training that you received, mixture of everything? All the above. Yeah. All the above. I mean, a lot of it's my nature, you know. Um, I don't shy away from confrontation, but I try to learn. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I try to understand people and, and, and empathize with them. Um, so, yeah. And then just seeing, ha having mentors and seeing people that, handle those situations um, in the way I described. And you're like, wow, that's a lot easier than wrestling people around on the ground. So it's like the more you learn how to disarm, you know, the less you have to fight, which is the ultimate goal. You're, you're a peace officer, you're a peacekeeper. So you're, the, the finish line for us is keeping a peace and voluntarily getting someone into handcuffs. The last thing you want to do is go hands-on, uh, you know, have a pissing contest verbally, uh, and then the last resort of shooting. So that's the, that's, it's a failure in, in, um, in my field. It's a life-saving organization at the end of the day. Yeah. I think that so gets forgotten. I mean, um, and not to belittle anybody who gets killed, but like when you go with the percentages and the interactions, it's, um, 
it can help you to get perspective of so many people are out there and their main goal every day is to serve and protect, to maintain lives, yeah. not to take lives. I'm super curious about you as a 20 year old something officer in New York post. And it, did you say it was post nine 11 when you had first become yeah, an officer NYPD from 2000, 2004. I, can't imagine a crazier time. I wasn't, I'm, I remember exactly where I was. I was in a community college when 9-11 happened. I watched it. I snuck into the nursing wing and I watched it with like a CPR dummy. And then an hour later, school gets closed. I go home and then I'm on the TV for six hours. Like it's so vivid, even though it was 20 some years ago for me. I can't imagine what New York City was like afterwards. I did not go anywhere near New York City afterwards and i can't imagine what you were trying to like what you were tasked with in trying to maintain peace and order and then like provide people with assurance of you are safe is what i think but i don't know if that's right sure sure yeah you you nailed it and um yeah it was a it was that and then trying to go home and then keep peace at home which is probably the toughest thing so yeah, it was, um, uh, I'm, I'm still learning about you know, all the emotions that it went through as, like I say, as it comes up through conversations with people and things that bring back those memories. But it was probably like the best time of my life and then the worst time of my life. You know, various, you know, the various activities and things that we saw and people that we encountered and things that we did. So when you you recover a body, seeing seeing a body that was horrible at one point, but then great at another point where you're like, okay, wow, we could reunite the, the family with whatever it is, uh, artifacts that we found, bones or an actual body. So like, okay, we, we're we bringing closure, but then at the same time, you're seeing this and you're like, wow, this is, this is someone's loved one that they just went to work. They were an innocent person doing their job and now they're gone and they had no... They didn't do anything wrong whatsoever to bring the, to bring this act on them, and that's horrible. So, yeah, it was that that duality, that Jungian thing of this is great, and then this is horrible too. So, yeah, I, I can't imagine being that rational about it at twenty, though. Like in my, uh, I was, I was doing the math. I was probably in my early late twenties, early thirties, okay. somewhere around there, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't vocalize that to anyone, but that was kind of what was going on in my brain. Of, it was exhausting working sixteen-hour days, like six to five days a week, sometimes seven. But then it was almost a luxury of being down there and being a part of this tremendous mission. And if I was still in LA, it would have killed me not to be there. But then it's killing me doing it, doing this extremely hard labor, you know, mentally taxing. And just, you know, going home for like a couple of hours and then coming back in. And it was just like Groundhog Day. But, you know, it was like, if not me, then who? Like, no, I wanted to be there. That the ultimate honor, I thought, to bring closure to fellow Americans. Was like, that was what you were tasked with? Yeah, it was uh, after, you know, the initial, you know, rescue part, which was very small. That was over with and it became recovery. So for almost like a year... Ground Zero was still, you know, an active crime scene of, you know, recovering body parts, artifacts, or, you know, uh, very few intact bodies. And so I got to 
do it at ground zero and uh, at Great Kills, Staten Islands, which is where all the um, uh, big debris would be shipped to to this landfill and it'd be sorted out, sifted through, kind of like mining, like uh, looking for gold. So you try to find, you know, identification and bones and different things you could identify people with. So, uh, yeah, that was, and then in a little bit of uh, site security, because in, a, in the initial stages, we we still didn't know what was going on. We we're at war, and then there was all these different false reportings that were coming through the system of, oh, wow, there's a suicide bomber here. There was this here. They're going to attack the subway, and then you still have this threat stream that's active. So you're working in a security um, apparatus as well, and then um, and then in between there, and then you when you get shipped back to your working precinct, then you're back to normal crime fighting so it was <laughs> it was it was unbelievable it was it was a lot and but that was having anyone that was literally your like you, your day-to-day sorting like that was a priority that's i i never even considered that somebody that multiple multiple people had to do that as their job that's um god dude like 20 years later that i'm i'm I don't know. That's yeah, unsettling. And then like it's unsettling. <laughs> yes, it was a. Um, it was something else. I, I wish I had like a diary of all the emotions. But I just get home and I'm just. Sometimes I, I couldn't even get in the shower. I'm just you know covered in soot and all that. And my uh, wife at the time, she's like, "You're gonna take a shower?" I'm like, "I can't even get." It. I'm like, just. Just uh, we'll, we'll wash the sheets after this. I'm like, I'm exhausted. I can't even move. I just want to go to sleep. I'll, I'll never forget the my favorite baseball team's the Yankees, and the World Series was going on. That was a big thing if you're a Yankee fan. And uh, so my wife at the time sees saying, hey, the, the Yankees, the, you know, this is on. And I think I forgot which game they lost it at uh, against uh, Arizona. And um, I think I was sitting on the couch, but I was completely asleep. So she nudges me. She's like, Yankees just lost. I'm like, oh, okay. And I just walked to bed before, I, you know, I'd throw the TV out the window. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> we lost. What the hell? Before I was like, oh, okay, you know, it's like past the catch-up. No big thing. I just went to bed and um, and that was that. And on the days off, we would, um, uh, a lot of us would go to funerals. So you kind of muster up the energy to throw on your Class A uniform. And um, in the paper, they would have, like a list of every funeral for you know civilians and um you know first responders or whatever and i would just kind of pick something that was somewhat maybe reasonably close that i could drop do without a hassle and that was just part of the duties i'm like i gotta go i, I don't know who this person is sometimes i did sometimes i didn't and um and uh that was that was everyday life so there was no real off days how do you stick with being a cop after that I, like I'm, it, I, I would quit, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's a good question. I don't. Um, I, I just love what I do. It's a lot of it's the people that you work with. If you have a great, a lot of great people around you, like they say, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. So it's really not. It's work, but it's not work for me. It's just like breathing. It's like this is what I've meant to do. And as I go on through the years and get better and better at the job, it becomes more fun. We say. I know whatever pops up, I, I could deal with. So I'm like, all right, yeah, we we got to deal with this. I know, been through that already, right? This is what we got to do, X, Y, Z. 
Uh, we got riots. All right, no problem. You know, this is how we we handle that. And it's just a, uh, you know, it's this too shall pass type of mentality. I'm like, all right, we'll handle it. Is that the mantra? Is it, the this too shall pass. For me, yeah, I was like, I, I, oh, I try to tell like a, the guys, you know, there's a dip in law enforcement right now, recruiting and retention. And it's like, I try to give um, student of a history, so I try to give my guys and people around me in the profession to uh, the historical perspective. I'm like, hey, this stuff happened in the 70s before. There are targeted assassinations through separatist groups and terrorist groups that people and even that don't know to this day and demoralization of like the Vietnam generation of vets and then translate into law enforcement. And then it swung back up. So this is nothing new. This happens and it, they'll, it'll go through an uprising of we'll, we'll get through this, this defunding and all this other nonsense. It, it happened before. So, and so just kind of give people the blueprint of this hope. And it's going to change. You just got to hold on. You know, it's like a storm, you know, earthquake or whatever. It's going to suck for that five minutes or a day, two days. And for for us, it's a couple of years. And then not a big thing. And when you look back, you know, these people that were in wars and survived these traumatic things, it really was the best days of their life because they overcame that adversity. And they were part of something that was unbelievable, a huge challenge. Like you... Like we were saying about, you know, being in peacetime, like there's that void. But once you were in the shit, you're like, wow, yeah, we made it. And then when people, you know, another generation, like, tell me, how was, how, how was it during the pandemic? What about the riots? Or how about 9-11? You're like, oh, yeah, this is, this is what we did. And it's, it's, a, it's amazing experience. It's just you got to just take a step back and realize it's not a tragedy. It's just a challenge. So it's just that slight mindset change of, no, this isn't something that's horrible. This is something that's going to make me better. Yeah, man, that's that's a great way to avoid the the mindset's a great way to avoid dwelling in the suffering and the sorrow of the experience because that's mostly why you quit because it's too mm -hmm. hard versus folk like flipping it to be like when I get through this versus right now this is too much. Yes. Do you yes. did you have a moment like where you, I don't know, were able to enact that. You look back and you're like, that was my moment where I knew I was just going to be a bad motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's like a I'm, weird question, but like I always look for like these tip, like, tipping points or like pivotal moments where you're like, that's when I knew I was like, I'm doing what I want to be doing and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, well, one, I don't think I'm bad. I'm just, you know, I, I try to be resilient, just to keep on pushing. But probably during the last riots, um, when everything was going to hell, and um, we, my team was just firing on all cylinders, I was like, I'm like, wow, this is, it was kind of like the, the Super Bowl for policing. Like the worst, worst case scenario happened, and we persevered. So while we're doing, while we're in the midst of this, I'm like, this is great. All our training, all our experience, all our encounters have been building to this day, and we're performing at the highest levels. Like, yeah, I'm like, this is why I'm here. This is, um, I, I stood up to the challenge, and we persevered. We not only made it, but we we performed fantastically. And I was so proud of my guys and everyone else that was surrounding me. 
And that's when it really, it really hit home. I was like, man, I could do, I could do 20 more years standing on my head and it's, it won't be an issue. So you thought that yeah. after dealing with the, and you're talking about the riots in Los Angeles. Yes. Yeah. You thought I could do 20 more years after dealing with the riots in Los Angeles. Yeah. It was, it was, you know, I had all the ingredients of success of, you know, eating clean, um, staying positive, all the training that I did before that uh, paid off in spades and uh, of just having that. And then also having that bulletproof mindset. I was like, bring it on. I was like, I don't want this to happen, but if this, if riding lasted another month or two, whatever, we can make it happen. And then when the pandemic happened, I was like, okay, you know, everyone else is at home and I'm, we're out here in the streets and we're susceptible to this virus and everything else that came with it. Like, no, no big thing. We're, we're moving on, you know, like after 9-11, I mean, it took no day for granted, but I, I built myself up of every day trying to sharpen that, sharpen that mind and the tools I had to, uh, to overcome. And after the riots, it was like, this is proof of concept. So anything, anything after this is, is, um, it's softball. So what did, do you have to do for the riots? Because my impression was cops just let people loot and it was very much like a stand down, let them get their anger out kind of um, objective. <laughs> Whether that was taught, I'm sure the people who were looking around were pretty pissed off and they're like, um, this goes against everything in my fucking being. Like I'm here to protect and serve. Why are we letting crime happen? But that was like the narrative that I thought of. So I'm curious. It, it depended. It changed city by city, and then, and then it changed even within the city. Some, depending on who was running the show at a particular time, who the incident commander was, what exactly was going on. Thankfully, uh, the segment that I worked, you know, the unit that I had, and the leaders above me were no, take care of business. We we're not going to be sitting idle. We're going to be proactive, and you know, the best way to that have a ride is, is or to stop a ride is not to let the ride happen. So when we'd hit different pockets of uh, agitators or what have you, or certain things that we saw before, you know, that we're going to light that flame, we would, we would handle business. So I just happen to be at the right place, at the right time with the right people. I can't say the same for other police departments or other cities that didn't have that luxury, but yeah, we did not sit by and let things burn or let people go bananas. So how do you kind of stop it or prevent it? Are there some basic techniques? Not like I'm looking for like my own 12 step of, oh my God, I believe a riot's about to work out. Let me go down this checklist. But I hadn't heard anybody say that. It's, you know, basically you're confronting the situation that's going to, that you understand that's going to be volatile or has the potential and nipping it in the bud. It's kind of like just like a fire if you have, uh, one tree on fire, uh, you can't let it spread through the forest. So just put that, put that one tree out immediately. Don't let it say, oh, well, let it, let's let it burn for a while. Maybe let's burn itself out. Like, no, you can't. It's, it's contagious. You know, nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd. So if you, you'd see a crowd forming, uh, after curfew, you had to confront it. You're like, Hey guys, you can't be here. You're past curfew. Uh, you're going to get locked up. If you don't move, if you don't leave in a minute, we're giving you a minute. And then Boom, lock them up. Say, say what you mean and mean what you say. Mm -hmm. And just be upfront, be honest, and, and, and just overwhelming uh, show of force. 
So yeah, we solved a lot of problems that way. And um, unfortunately, other places didn't. They, they kind of took a back seat. But yeah, that, once that forest gets on fire, I mean, it's going to take 10 times the resources to put that out. So nip it in the bud. That That's maybe just whatever, media virus, what, what I hadn't seen. Because every picture I saw, the cops always looked so outnumbered. Like mm-hmm. the, the fire was already spreading beyond you. It's like there's nothing we can do, which I always thought was part of why they had to stand by. And when you said show of force, I never thought for some reason that was like an option. <laughs> Maybe again, because of what I saw on the news, but you, you were able to have the numbers to kind of detain and arrest people. No, you weren't overwhelmed. We're always going to be, we're always going to be undermanned, under-resourced, and it's always going to be say one against 50. But if that one person says, hey, I can't take all of you, but I'm going to take some of you and it's going to hurt just in a figurative sense. You know, the last thing we want to do is hurt someone. But in just in in just a human, you know, human inconvenience, even like, oh, my God, now I got to go through booking like an inconvenience is a right. You make it difficult because people want to avoid difficulties. Yeah. So you're going to have that one percent of. Yeah. Bring it. And then you're going to have a majority of like, well, this is not really what I came here. They're, they're, um, I'm, I'm bluffing and I don't want to go through the, this experience. So they're going to bounce. And then you're going to have those people in between that are like, should I go with the 1% or should I take the path of least resistance? And most take the path of least resistance and they take off and they'll go somewhere else. But yeah, we're always, always undermanned. But if you have that strong physical presence and, and you show that no, this these are the repercussions, and we're not we're holding the line, and we're not going to let this happen in our city. It's you could tame a crowd very easily with those tactics. How do you pick the one percent you're going to go after in the crowd? Are there like certain tendencies, characteristics? Is it just the dude shouting? Is it the person up front? Person not following a command? Are there things you actually notice? Where you're like, that's the one. You know, we within need the to crowd, get. there's always there's going to be, you know, there's going to be those like professional professional agitators. So you have to you have to look at the the person, not necessarily that's barking the most. It's that person that's kind of uh, lurking, just a couple of people behind them, and that's looking for opportunities, looking for weaknesses, and really keying in on this. Or someone that's the leader of it, but they're not, you know, being overt, you know, whispering or using communications. And you're like, okay, this is this is who we have to take out. This is the shot caller. Uh, this guy's got the keys to what's going on. And the guy screaming over here is just a distraction. So you have to really be keyed up on having a good view of what's going on, not getting tunnel vision of just the people in front of you. That's immediately what I thought of. Like what vision and awareness in an intense situation? Because I would think the just the the fear would make you zone in and like, Tunnel visions are, yeah, the great word for it. Like it would just make you hone in on what's closest to make you in survival mode. Do you, like, are you a super meditator? Can you practice being calm in those situations to remain that aware? Absolutely, yeah. Just doing jujitsu the last couple of years, uh, um, cold exposure therapy, meditation of just being able to have your, lower your blood pressure as as low as possible and zero out any noise, especially in a a riot, you know, we're hearing gunshots, fireworks nonstop. There's so many distractions 
where you're constantly, you could be constantly rattled with that, but exposing yourself to, you know, getting choked out or having multiple people attacking you in during in different training scenarios. Once you survive those, those encounters, like, oh, okay, it's, this isn't so hard. And the more, you know, exposure over and over again. So when you encounter it for real, it's like a walk in a park. So if you're surfing and you get, you know, you, you're going through wave after wave and um, in, in foul weather and you do that numerous times, when it happens, you're like, it's just like, you know, drinking a glass of water. It's just very, very easy after a while. So you could block out everyone screaming and, and all the noise that's going on and focus, really focus in on what you have to look at instead of reacting. Have you always kind of had that fortitude to you? Like even early on, I guess I'm like, now I'm thinking of your life, like New York, you and LA, you, and I'm trying to understand more. Cause that's always been one of the things I've thought about with police officers. And when I hear people talk about them is the, do you want them to feel the only way they can protect themselves is with a weapon or do they have that confidence both mentally and physically of, like you said, jujitsu. So if someone comes at me, I've been in this situation before where it's additional post-training. And I'm wondering like early on in your career, did you have that or were you a little more, I don't want to insult you and say skittish, but I feel like I would feel skittish if I'm feeling assaulted or attacked. Yeah. You're more, you know, you're more apt to have someone, you know, get your goat and, and tap into that ego, that challenge. And so, yeah, in the early twenties of, you know, you, you, when you're facing that verbal assault, you think it's quest of you and you don't realize like, Oh no, this person's just screaming and acting, you know, they're being antagonistic because of, they just weren't given the, the proper tools or they just had a horrible day at home or they just have a horrible life. And now you're just the outlet for their frustration. Mm-hmm. So don't take it personal. I say that I say they're just yelling at, you know, the, the badge They're not, they don't know who you are. And, uh, so don't take it personal, but, uh, yeah, in the early twenties, you take it as an affront, like, Oh, this guy's challenging me. You know, it's like, you know, a couple of years later, you're like, no, it's just, he's just having a bad day or, you know, he's, um, he's in fear of him. He's in fear as well. And that's just the way he's expressing himself. So you just have to say, Hey, you know, this is just business. I'm not here to harass you or do whatever. You know, this person next door said you did X, Y, Z. I want to hear your point of view. I'll give you the shot, you know, and uh, put them at ease and just don't make it a confrontation. But I mean, the male brain, what they say, when they say like 25 years of age, it's not fully developed. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, verbal confrontations with people and, and, uh, but then it's it's like a craft, like anything else. Just you hone it. So luckily, I've had really good uh, mentors and partners and bosses where I, I saw that point of view. I was like, oh wow, that's the guy I want to be. So I credit them. Yeah, there was actually a new study out that said it's forty five now for the male brain. So you can, <laughs> no, it's just, I believe it. I believe it, <laughs> I believe it too. Compared to women, definitely. Yeah, dude. Yeah. It's, man, cavemen. Just, stupid parenting note like uh, having a daughter and being a teacher i'm like that's that's the jackpot man at least right now because early on she's like you can tell her to do something and it just gets done and you're like 
you take that for granted when you're around other kids and all of a sudden it's like, dude, I told you to do that. I was like, yeah, I got distracted with blank. Um, did, but did you always have like the physical confidence in your skills? Like I'm just thinking like martial it, arts, like did you grow up knowing like you could scrap or take care of yourself? Yeah, I grew up, um, my dad uh, taught me boxing at an early age. So I had those skills, but it's kind of like a false, false, you know, skill that you think, you know, and then after having this, you kind of become a victim of your own successes, but uncontested successes. <laughs> so you, you know, in high school, whatever, you beat up somebody, you just didn't know anything. And you just happen to win. You're like, oh, now I'm the man. After you have a couple of those fights in uh, grade school or whatever. So you have like a false sense of security. And looking back at it now yeah. and knowing what I know now. But yeah, I was always, you know, pretty good with my hands and but then being a solo child i was um you know more in touch with my thoughts and i could hit you know coming up from a tumultuous childhood of you know parents being going at it you know you could kind of learn to you know uh learn to you know remove yourself from those uh, emotional outbursts and wanting to quell those disputes when they do happen so that mm. peacekeeper thing was really it came in handy down the road of like, all right, I don't want to be in this scenario anywhere anymore where someone's losing their mind and I know how to deal with this because I dealt with it as a teenager. Of okay, right. This is, you know, mom, dad, this is what what are we what are we fighting about here? So I was I had to rely I didn't have any brothers or sisters to rely on. It was all on me. So I learned at a really early age of not reacting. That's really interesting, man. The the broken home, d like domestic issues and flipping that again. Like, I guess that's the trend I'm noticing with you. Like you're flipping all this adversity into like, this is a skill I have. I know how to de-escalate because I've been around situations where they were escalating and it was on me at a young age. Like that's, man, do yeah, I wish, God, that's the saying, right? Like, I wish, why is youth wasted on the young? Like, matching mm -hmm. up the knowledge that you get into the situation if back right. in the day. Like, God, it would just be so much. I don't, like, you'd be a billionaire. Everyone would be like Elon Musk, intelligence-wise. <laughs> you know, you have the time. Right. Because can you imagine if you did every single thing your parents and teachers told you to do from day one? Oh, my God. <laughs> That'd be a good movie. It's like kid from you know the age of ten did every every good thing that was told to him. Yeah. Where he ends up in his thirties and forties, I mean, it's got to be incredible. It's just something simple of you know save save your money of every paycheck, put a quarter of it away, right, uh, write down everything that happens to you in a diary, at least one or two pages. That can, I mean, the, the gold that that would produce is unimaginable, but. Good teachers like yourself, um, if, if they can just, you know, get to a kid, maybe 10%, 20%, that has a great, huge effect on, on, on the world and that you'll never realize. Maybe you'll have a student, you know, one or two students that will hit you up later on once they graduated and tell you that. But I know I've had quite a few teachers that had that effect on me and uh, I was able to verbalize it to one and uh, he was like overwhelmed by it. Um, yeah, one of my teachers, teachers retired policeman. And uh, so when he saw me uh, in uniform, you know, 
he was overwhelmed. He was like, holy cow. He's like, was, you know, I was, you know, was one of the guys always getting in trouble and, uh, you know, getting into fights and just being a hooligan. But then once he saw who, you know, what I was doing, you know, he was so overwhelmed. And I told him, I said, hey, no, no, Mr. Hop, and we, you were an inspiration. I wanted to be like you and hearing your stories and everything. I said, we, you didn't think we were listening, but I was listening. And uh, he was like overcome with emotion. So, yeah, teachers, you know, good, good neighbors and friends. Wow, it's just so, so impactful at a young age. We have, people have no idea. Yeah, right, because you just never get it in the moment. You know, no. you never get the feedback no. that you're making any sort of difference in the moment. It's, um, no. but those seeds are there. Yeah. That's what you got to remember. That is true. You just got to believe in them that like, so you were actually a hooligan. Cause you had said like throwing hands and that's typically someone who actually throws hands what they say. Like it yeah. was pretty common I mean, for you to the, get in fights. Yeah. We were into, you know, punk rock and, you know, hardcore music, heavy metal. So you know, you just had all that angst and aggression and, and confusion growing up. And yeah, so, you know, the, the crowd that I ran with in high school, yeah, we was, we were looking to get after it. So <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I was a problem as a kid. And, but I had, a, a, we were good problems though. We'd never, you know, like I said, we'd pick on the bullies. We'd find the bullies and, and take it to them. So you know, fighting in school is not great, but it, it was for a purpose. So, um, so my teachers, yeah, they, they had a, <laughs> God bless them. It was a, we were definitely a challenge, but uh, very impactful lessons I learned from, from quite a few of them. What was the name of the band that you were a guitarist in? I had no idea it was punk rock. That's awesome. <laughs> it was called Inertia, but we, uh, we thought we were being cheeky. We spelt it with, a, with an E. <laughs> instead of an I. So it was like, well, like energy, inertia, you know, it was like, we, we, we had that forward momentum, you know. It was, uh, that's, yeah, a pretty, dude, that's a pretty good punk rock back band name. Who, uh, who came up with it? Was there a cool story behind it or you just like science class one day? You were like, yep. Wow. You know, um, it was my buddy Bill that got me out here in LA and that's a good question. Who came up with it? I don't know who came up with it, but I, came up with a logo and we even made uh, backstage passes. So that was a big thing in the eighties. Like, Oh, one day we, you know, we got to get backstage. And so we had, before we even did a gig, we had backstage passes that we were, you know, going to theoretically hand out. And we, so we had the logo, you know, the branding and everything else that went along with it. So Dude, that's uh, hilarious. Yeah. No, no, no. We really are a big deal. We have backstage passes. Oh, what are your originals? <laughs> we don't have originals yet. We just got backstage passes. Yeah. Trust me. I'm going to be huge. The next Zeppelin. <laughs> You're going to want one of these. Did you, um, like how far along did you guys get as a band? How big did inertia get? How much inertia did you have? Maybe would be the better way to ask. <laughs> Our Achilles heel was always finding a singer. Like, you know, everyone wanted to be the guitarist. Everyone wanted to be the drummer. No one wanted to be the bassist or singer. And uh, dealing with singers is notorious. They're just flakes and they think it's all about them. So, that was always our struggle. So we, you know, had, I think we had maybe two singers and they were the flakiest guys, great guys, but they could never show up on time. They were always doing something else. So it became more of a jam band. And then once we hit, you know, probably like the college years, you know, that everyone just starts going their own way and, you know, working or what have you. And then that dream kind of just uh, goes to the wayside. So but we had a, 
we had a good time though. It was, um, we were kind of, um, for a long time, kind of straight edge. So it was a good outlet for us music where we weren't into drugs. We weren't into booze. Um, that was our, a lot of it was our outlet was music. So just the rock. that was a good. Now, yeah. were you like the typical, what would now be like the emo kind of grunge punk rock, like Mohawk, Spikes, Black? No, it was more of um, more of a black flag, just a working class, blue collar type of appeal. And then we kind of crossed into like a bluesy type of vibe. So we kind of morphed, oh. you know, through the years of, and then it was like a, a segment where I was trying to think, I was trying to be like progressive and go through, I went through like a little phase of like a jazz fusion phase. So, you know, like in teenage years, you just kind of, you know, you're devouring it all. You've never heard, there's so much music out there that you haven't heard. So when you yeah. started hearing different elements, like, wow, I, that, that sounds like it could be fun. So, but the, the main, the main draw that it was always loud, fast and aggressive, no matter what it was. <laughs> Dude, that, I wouldn't, I had no, uh, zero expectations that you were a punk rock guitarist. That's awesome. Do you ever get the like craving to play now? Do you still like even have a guitar where you just string along? Yeah, I have a, I have a guitar bass and within like during the pandemic, I picked up electronic drums. So uh, my best friend had the drums in my house. So it was kind of always like a frustrated drummer. I always gravitated toward uh, really drum orientated music. And uh, whenever he wasn't playing the drums, I was playing it. So now, now that, you know, with electronic kits, you could just throw in headphones and have a go at it. Oh, so yeah. good, but I said, Hey, I got this electronic kit that, um, I'm moving to Nashville. Do you want it? I'm like, yes, yes. So I could live out my drum fantasies now at a, a later age. So it's, uh, so yeah, music's will be with me to the day I die, whether it's drums, live shows, playing guitar, I, I devour it all. Like music was my medicine. Do you have a favorite gig like that you actually played? Oh, that I played myself? Yeah, that you were in. Yeah, you were in the band. Oh, the first one we ever did. It was probably maybe 30 people in a club in New York City, but it looked like Madison Square Garden. <laughs> and you're like, wow. You know, first time playing in front of, you know, people that aren't your friends or family. And intimidating but exhilarating at the same time. So it's like, you know, you lost your virginity. You're never going to forget that. So <laughs> that was definitely, that that was, that was definitely the, the peak. Do you, you know? <laughs> first and last, do you, yeah. um, do you remember um, how you got it? Mm, uh, we had a bassist at the time that knew about this club that uh, put us onto it. And uh, we, um, we played only three songs, but it felt like we played for two hours. And uh, so, yeah, he, uh, he put us onto this place somehow. There was a there was a newspaper called The Village Voice, so you scour through all these different places that would have new bands that could just come up and jump on and play a set, kind of you know, oh, sight unseen. Almost like open mic type stuff. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Dude, that is man, just the picture going through the social media and just seeing all the police stuff and seeing the jujitsu stuff and then just picturing you as a teenager that that's it i don't know you too long but it just is weird it weirds me out thinking of you as a punk rocker <laughs> from the images most my, that i have 
most a lot of my close friends now are all uh, musicians. So from um, the House of Pain to the Stray Cats to Sex Pistols to Sepultura, they're all good friends of mine, and uh, I learn so much from them because they they come in from life completely different area than I am, and with a um, whole different set of life experiences and, and values. So. I've drawn so much inspiration from those guys. So I really gravitate toward more of the artistic side of life. Um, that was always my, even I was doing like more of a methodical type of job. I always had an artistic side of my mind and always, always approach life through an art side. And, you know, yeah, I guess you had like that math brain yeah. and the creative brain was always on creative brain. So, yeah, it's funny how sometimes what you, what you really enjoy, even if you're good at the more methodical, the enjoyment comes from the creative. And it's like, would you enjoy the creative if that was your daily? It's almost like the mm. universe, life, whatever, God steers you towards a job where it won't ruin your passions. <laughs> You'll enjoy the job. But it was like, if I have to do that as a grind, I've heard basketball players talk about that. They're like, I loved basketball, but then when I was a professional, it sucked. Like they'll go to college and they'll be like, I don't want to play, but I don't, I don't want to work out for three hours today. And it was like, well, I have to, or else I lose my scholarship. And it was like, it, it, it killed my love. I was like, I'm done. So I wonder if that's just something like in, I don't know if like some deity out there looks out for people to help them be happier. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point of view. Like a lot of Navy SEALs I'm friends with, the last thing they want to do is go to the beach and swim because <laughs> they loved it at one time. And then it just got, it just became work instead right. of a hobby. So yeah. Having your hobby turn into a job like anything else. Uh, yeah. You have to, it could be a blessing and a curse at the same time. How'd you get into this musical circle? Did you grow up with these guys? Is somebody like married? Um, no, I mean, just, just being involved in the scene, like the uh, punk rock and hardcore and hip-hop community, it's very small. And as, as a fan, and uh, you, you get a certain amount of access that they're not as pretentious as, say, like, if you just only went, into, went to see, like, U2 and the Rolling Stones or whatever, you're never going to rub elbows with those guys. But then once you kind of become a part of that scene and uh, you're accepted... And uh, you befriend people like anything, any other type of industry. And then one person introduces you another. And it's like one of my buddies, um, uh, his friends, uh, he's a in a hardcore band. And uh, he's very good friends with someone in like a top tier, like Rolling Stones type band. He's like, hey, you got so much in common with uh, so-and-so. You guys got to meet. You really hit it off. And then we met for coffee and yeah, we hit it off. So just, you know, things like that, you know, when you're, you're a good person, people want to, you know, introduce you to other good people, I guess. So, you know, that's just how that kind of worked. I think that's, yeah, it's some, it blows my mind. I don't know if it's just cause I've spent too much time in Southern Delaware where you feel very isolated, but it's like a, it's an amazing six degrees of like separation. The whole you, Kevin Bacon could get to anybody in the world type thing. Like that's sure. a weird, that's, that's an amazing connection group. All cause you're a punk rocker, huh? I mean, not necessarily just a lover of music and the arts right. and it's, and I have my literary side, like Susie Hinton and have a whole bunch of literary friends in that world. 
And um, that's something that's always fascinated me, being a voracious reader, you know, growing up by yourself. You know, like books were like friends, you know, they were mm. surrogate friends. Having that relationship to reading and that made, you know, thrusts me into that arena of having friends that are authors as well and being an aspiring author. So, you know, you kind of, you are what you eat. So if you're consuming music nonstop and literature, that's going to be your world. And growing up in New York City and then now L.A., I mean, luckily it's like these are the epicenters for those type of arenas. So I just kind of really blessed by having that environment as opposed to like Delaware. Maybe there's a one or two people in those field, yeah. field. Here it's just so saturated, so it's a little easier to make those connections, you know. Makes sense. It, aspiring author? I would, are you trying to, what are you writing? Uh, I struggle with nonfiction and fiction. What do I want to be the first one? So it looks like it's going to be fiction. Okay. So, do you yeah, mind so talking about it or does that, do you like feel that'll be some sort of jinx? No, no. I mean, it's, uh, I want to make it where the outline is basically, it's uh, kind of um, like the movie Taxi Driver. If you merge Taxi Driver with Apocalypse Now. And uh, so someone that's, uh, you know, walking through hell and then comes out and, and is the victor and it, it overcomes comes that resistance, I guess, kind of the theme of sort of what, you know, now on that I'm vocalizing it, you know, it comes up in your mind, like, why would I want to write this? And then it's like, I guess that's maybe what I'm living. So that's why I love these podcasts because I'm now I'm thinking and coming up with these conclusions and connecting the dots of things I didn't even know, but it's in the subconscious. So... That's what I want to, like something that's really raw, like something like, look, I love uh, Charles Bukowski. So it's, it's very hard hitting, but very simple at the same time. He didn't use a lot of flowery language, but so many people could relate to what he wrote and had that strong connection to something that was raw and visceral and uh, honest. That's what I want to do within like, kind of like a police vein. Okay. And would the main character be a police officer or are you going to take more like the criminal aspect? Uh, definitely both. Definitely both. And um, try, to th try not to give away of one, uh, yeah, one theme. But uh, See, I've never it, created yeah. anything that I've had to protect. <laughs> yeah, so. there's just, yeah, yeah, one thing I don't, didn't want to give up, but... It's, um, yeah, th th those are, those are my central themes of what I want to do. And, and then I want to craft that into a screenplay, a uh, huge lover of, you know, the cinema world. So I have a lot of friends in that vein as well. And I just want to create something that I think is lacking in the current stream of like police novels, like Bosch and those type of things that are good, but I, was something missing that I want to see for myself. I want to write something that I want to read and then, have that on the screen as well. Something I want to see that I love. The I've, I've spoken to a couple of directors and I don't have any in my life like that I talk to regularly. I was just fortunate enough to have them on the podcast. And the amount of decisions and like stress that goes in from, I picture this and I know what I want. And now I have to help like 75 other people understand how I visualize it. And it's like, it'll never exactly sit right. And like for someone like me, 
that would eat me up. It would be very hard. Like I'd be the director that would burn the entire budget within the first 30 second <laughs> shot. Cause I'm like, it's just not right yet. And I'm curious about your personality with how do you see you implementing your vision? Yeah. I mean, life is all about, you know, meeting someone in the middle. You know, we have so much division with the left and the right. I would say, meet me in the middle. So creating art within a group atmosphere, which if you're the director or whatever role you're in, you have a team. And unless you're a dictator and everyone's going to buy off on that, uh, yeah. and which isn't pro which isn't fun. If I could, you know, motivate <laughs> you to see my side or you have a better idea, I'm like, yeah, Sean, that is a great, better idea. Let me, let's do it your way. And I always love that collaborative effort. So if it's not 100% my vision, I understand that because that's the world I'm in and I understand compromise and seeing things from different perspectives. So... Yeah, that's I could see it's definitely a challenge, but a creative process with a team is very fulfilling. So, yeah, what's what's on the page and what gets executed on a film, two different things. And just it getting made takes, if people didn't know, it's, it's almost a miracle to get something on film or in a television series. There's so many obstacles. It's ridiculous. So when something makes it on there, it's it's like hitting the lotto for those guys. Yeah, uh, if you're not um, just the fundraising aspect from what I, I've heard to get the not only to organize the permits to deal with people in the unions to getting mm -hmm. and finding the actors almost like the not that actors are flaky, but like what you were saying about a lead singer is you could have someone in mind go with this role right for them. And then all of a sudden they're out on something better. And now you're like, well, who's my number two? I don't have a number two. And then you're just stuck and things die. And oh yeah, I mean, it's, I, I couldn't imagine pouring my heart and soul. And then all of a sudden it's so close. And then one little variable out of the thousands that you have to depend on goes away. It, um, yeah, it's, it's a game of failure. I mean, even after it gets done and it's about to, you know, go wide stream mainstream. And someone just catches a tweet that says whatever, one of the actors, the main actors, and then that's that springs that avalanche of disaster of, well, let's look into this guy's background. What else did he say? And then people start coming out of the woodwork, and then boom, your whole project is uh, is 86 and persona non grata. And you're like, you did everything right, but one little action on someone on the team could bring it all down. And it's happened many, many times in the last few years. So I can't imagine the frustration those guys go through do you so one of the things that i didn't realize until i started clicking around on you as well was the netflix special that you were a part of and it's funny my netflix subscription i was watching it when you were like hey can we go 8 30 i was watching the first episode of um it's hotel the guy from britain said it in such a good way hotel cecilia Oh yeah, and in English, call it uh, the Cecil. Cecil, that's what I was trying to remember. And he was like, Hotel Cecil. And it must be but I was looking and I'm like, this dude's been on Netflix too. Like you were a cop, but is part of you getting onto Netflix that you're interested in it? Or was that just happenstance that you were a cop dealing with a case and Netflix approaches you? It, it was, uh, it actually went back to being of service. Um, a couple I know that do true crime tours in downtown LA, 
they um, we became friends through the years, and uh, they approached me. They said, "Hey, there's someone that um, wants some background on downtown LA Skid Row, and uh, there weren't a few wanted to do um, wanted to be uh, interviewed for this." And um, so I just did it. I, I didn't want to really do this project, or I didn't know what it was going to be, and I just did it out of the love for them. I'm like, "Whatever you guys need, I'm, I'm there." Yeah, sure. So there was no. I didn't ask about money or what it was going to lead to. And I, I really didn't know. And so I just said, yeah, sure. If you want me to do it, I'm there. And I went down and took about, took about like a full day's work of eight hours, eight, 10 hours and uh, spoke to them about it. And I thought it was just going to be a small independent, you know, documentary that, you know, maybe a few thousand punters would see it. And then, as the months went by, they're like, oh, um, Brian Grazer and Ron Howard uh, producing it. I was like, Ron Howard, Happy Days? I'm like, oh, my God, wow, okay. And uh, so that's one one like big monument. And then I hear, oh, it's going to be sold to Netflix. And so it just became this huge thing. I had no idea. And then it just happened to be dropped during like the peak of the pandemic where everyone was home and just devouring Netflix. Right. And then it became the number one documentary for like a month. So just something that turned into a favor, turned into this huge thing that I had no idea and didn't, you know, didn't want to do or have any um, aspirations to do, but it happened. <laughs> Did, is that what inspires you to want to be on the screen or to create something on the screen or you had that before? No, I always, always like to be the guy behind the scenes, you know, just kind of, um, uh, like a kind of, if you're a fan of the Godfather, uh, one of my nicknames among some friends is like the consigliere. So I'm the guy behind the scenes of, you know, mediating disputes and, um, you know, kind of organizing things and setting, setting the stage. So yeah, no, this face isn't for the screen, but it, sometimes it happens. I, uh, I just did my like first, like official, uh, I guess you could say like acting role, a good buddy of mine that's a comedian hit me up. He said, Hey, I have a good friend that's, uh, um, that's uh, doing a movie and he needed a policeman for this one scene. And he's like, would you be interested? And, and again, I was like, I'm like, yeah, Freddie, whatever you, whatever you need, I'm there. This guy's a good friend of yours. That means he's a good friend of mine. I'm like, let him know. I have no idea how to act and that's not my thing, but sure, let's do it. And that ended up being really fun and a good experience. So, but yeah, I prefer behind the scenes of being, um, you know, being the straw that stirs the drink. I don't want to be the drink. <laughs> that's, that's, a good, that, that's a good saying. I've not um, looked at it both. I've, I've heard the, star, the straw part, but I've not heard like the, hey, I don't want to be the drink. Do, does it, these opportunities, are you like the believer in fate? Like the universe is pouring, giving you these little shots because you're going to get to create this screenplay or is it more like just a coincidence and it's happening kind of thing to you? I don't know if it's good karma or, you know, you know, the secret or whatever. Right. I, I, I kind of chalk to just being a, a reliable, you know, trying to be a reliable person and, uh, you know, being of service and uh, putting yourself out there of, of being available and helpful in whatever way. I think it's more of that where they know that this person's dependable. And uh, especially in the artistic world, like if you show up, you know, early and you're sober and you're excited and positive, I mean, that's a huge thing. Was, 
the artistic world is way different from uh, my world where you shall be there on time or early. And, you know, it's very regimented and, you know, paramilitary. And then the art, artistic side of the world, things aren't like that. So when you do present, you know, those, um, those characteristics, it goes a long way. So people like that in that industry, like, wow, this guy is coming prepared. He's here early. He's motivated. He's not going to be, he's not going to be playing grab ass. Um, he's going to be doing the right thing. So I think it's a little bit of a little combination of that. Did you get any, um, like insights, learn anything that you didn't know, takeaways that were pretty cool about the industry itself? Other than that, that like, Hey, it's nice when you show up sober and energetic. Well, I learned how hard it is. <laughs> you know, I had a, had a feeling, you know, yeah, it's, it's not easy. I didn't realize how hard it is where you, you think you know your lines and and then once that red light goes on and everyone's you know a huge set there's people behind you and you're feeling all these eyes and lights and what have you I'm like oh yeah this is this is a serious craft the people that pull it off and make it look seamless like oh there's a, there's a lot more to this and you know seeing something like I could do that what's memorizing some lines whatever that's nothing like no these these people are very talented. And it's, um, it's, it's a piece of, it's a piece of art for a reason. Yeah. Not I, everyone could do it. I, I think that's something like I take for granted is you, you watch whatever movie and you see seven actors total or 12 actors total. And you're like, Oh, for some reason you just think it was those 12 people involved in the movie. And then when you go through the credits, you're like, look at all those fucking names that had to figure yeah. out how to do this for months to make this hour and a half, two hours of my life, months on months on months for it. And it's, I guess it goes to the variables of, it is easy to take for granted. And you're like, yeah, it's a little bit of hard work, but I could do this. And then you're like, no, I got to organize a lot. There's, there's so much going on. Yes. Yeah. What, Whole new appreciation. Would you be happy with like the career shift? Like give up cop life for screenplay writer life? Oh, definitely. I mean, it would be great to do both. That's that would be the best of both worlds. But you know, everyone has a, a time limit, expiration date. Yeah. And if I could shift into the um, the art art side of the world, that'd be very seamless for me. I'd love that. Yeah, ready for it? Oh yeah, definitely. As long as it's a collaborative, it's just it's the same thing I'm doing now. And you're, you're collaborating with others. It's just a different a different goal. Instead of achieving the peace. You're collaborating with people to make them happy of whatever medium it is, whether it's music or literature or uh, cinema. So it's the same thing I'm doing, just a different end goal. Gotcha. Dude, I, man, I've got I've to start reading whatever books you're reading, man. Like you're, you're the, just the, the mindset and how you, I don't know, man, how you like connect things and flip them in that positive way. What I'm taking away from our conversation is I have way too much pessimism in my life. <laughs> I got to mm -hmm. get my chakra right. That's what I need. Um, I like, I like, but I feel like that's an East coast thing, right? I feel like the East, most of the majority of East coast people are like that negative, aggressive, pessimistic. And like the, everything I'm hearing from you is very West coasty. I've never been out to the West coast, but it's everything I mm -hmm. imagine of like that, like good vibes, bro. Kind of a thing. Yeah. I live in a beach city, so 
you don't there's very few beach cities where people are filled with angst and and turmoil and all that it's just being that that connection to the ocean just changes the rhythm in your mind and there's a reason why you know beach life is relaxed and uh positive because you know you walk out the door and you see the ocean is no greater beauty than that so you become your you become your environment so yeah when i was in new york city at the you know, concrete jungle we used to call it the volcano you just so filled with um with uh that a lot of it is it comes down to physiology that fight or flight so the minute i walk out the door it's humid i'm already soaked now and i just took a shower so now i'm pissed at that then i walk down to the subway and the train is late so i'm pissed at that then i get on the train and it's super crowded i can't i can't sit down i gotta stand so i'm angry at that so even before you start interacting at work you're already you're already in that that fight that fight mode you're like man this sucks and so when you walk in that door and then someone asks you hey how come you're late why this why that and it, you, you just erupt so that the east coast really you know, especially in the major cities grinds on you before you have to overcome so many more obstacles than in a place like this at a beach environment so mm-hmm. i understand where all the the anger comes from yeah how did you wind up out west just my best friend that i was supposed to join the the military with he said uh I think he heard it on the radio, maybe, um, my brother Bill, and said, hey, uh, they're, they're recruiting out west. And I always had an affinity for the West Coast due to, what I said, you know, music and uh, surf culture, BMX, that whole vibe, everything that was happening out here. And I was like, wow, yeah, that sounds like, that sounds like it'll be of an adventure. It was, it was kind of like joining the military but in, in a civilian police municipal atmosphere. Like, right, I'm going 3,000 miles away, uh, you know, instead of, overseas it's within continental u.s but in a completely alien environment that i had sort of a connection with through the arts so i said yeah let's do it took the test and then the rest was history (laughs) bmx you're into bmx biking too oh yeah yeah the movie (laughs) rad the opening scenes was you know just blocks from where i'm living now and seeing that as a kid was like wow this is that's that's something i would you know I was always drawn to. I don't remember Rad. I remember like the Christian, was it Christian Slater's, was it Gleaming the Cube, the skateboard yes. movie? Yeah, Ori Petty. Yeah, yes. right? Like I, and then he had another one that I think was like rollerblade focused where it wasn't Gleaming the Cube, but he was like a kid in Cincinnati. Um, but what's the Rad movie? It, it was actually very, very little of it was uh, films uh, here on the West Coast in LA and the South Bay. Most of it was in Canada, but all the cool scenes, I think, were, were in L.A. And uh, so it was just kind of like a coming of age, like a high school movie. that just happened to be the vehicle, you know, um, was uh, based around freestyling and BMX. But it was with uh, Lori McLaughlin, I think her name is, the gal that just got in trouble for, like, the USC uh, college scale. Oh, yeah, for so the full house. Movie just happened to be, have BMX scenes in it. And when we were, um, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, none of that stuff was really happening in New York City. It was all West Coast, so it became like this holy grail, like looking, pouring through magazines, and when you see it on on the film, you're like, oh, wow, this is what it looks like in real time, and just groundbreaking stuff for a kid. So it's like, that's where I want to be. That's the joy on your face from like a memory when you were 11 or 12 (laughs) just completely goes to the thing of like, yeah, the minds are not set 
even by the age of 45. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's that's now, did you actually move to this place because of that movie? Or is that just like an, another weird coincidence that you happen to be blocks from where the movie was filmed? It, um, the seeds were there. The seeds were definitely there. So when I first moved to LA, I just moved to the closest place that was, cause I didn't have a car, a New York city kid. I didn't have a car. So uh, I found this place that was the closest to the Academy and, uh, it was a horrible neighborhood, but then, um, year or so later, I ended up moving, uh, to, um, toward the beach. And then once you're there, that's no looking back. It's I'll never be, I'll never, never say never, but I'll probably never move anywhere where there's not a body of water and an ocean. So many of my colleagues now are uh, retiring to, you know, like Nevada and Idaho and all these inland places. So they're all like, you know, where are you going to retire to when uh, you, you retire? Where are you going to move to when you retire? I said, I'm here. I'm at Shangri-La. <laughs> You know, I'm five minutes away from the beach. The, one of the best gyms in the world is down the block from me. Uh, the best jiu-jitsu instructors in the world are 10 minutes away from me. I'm like, I have access to so many great things right here. I couldn't move anywhere else. Anything else is compromising, and it's going to be not even close to what I'm at living now. Yeah, it's, it's very grateful to live where I live and have access to all these great artists and um, outlets to you know, decompress from work. I feel like I want to bring up sad memories of yours so that I can stop being jealous. I want to like bring <laughs> you down to my level of like, <laughs> that sounds amazing. But I'm, I'm wondering now going from the East coast to the West coast as a, like as the cop, were, were you able to treat people the same? I'm going to assume, no, you almost had to get like some sort of mindset shift, but I don't, know that for sure i'm thinking you would have to though um to treat people differently on the west yeah. coast and the like interacting just like life as a cop in new york versus life as a cop in la where was it basically the same or did you have to switch up how you were a cop definitely um definitely language wise you know being really blunt and sharp with people probably had to take a little bit of a step back using uh, swear words, which is uh, like the New York alphabet. It's like fucking A, fucking B, fucking C. That's, that's the way we speak out here, not so much. So probably had to tailor the language a little bit and being as blunt as you can was New York things are so fast paced. You don't have time to really couch your words or, you know, maybe that's, that's what I thought at the time. So here I have more of a luxury of in time of, um, approaching things you know from a different different state of mind so so yeah i guess i did have to you know alter some things or adapt i should say you know different environments so you got to become one with your environment so zen god how was um skid row because i've only heard about la and i've like seen pictures whatever but i've never actually had to interact and just the part of the documentary that i'm in you were, I guess, working like that was, uh, is it called like beat or patrol area? Sure. Yeah. It was one of my beats. Yeah. Okay. When yeah. I was in the uniform capacity. It was kind of like round zero was like the best, the best and the worst. The, the, the worst is you've seen the worst of humanity, you know, people uh, strung out and rock bottom and just 
living conditions that no human being should be subjected to. But then selfishly on the other side, when I thought my, if I had some real problems going on in my head and was having that pity party at woe is me, uh, when I'm leaving work, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in my thoughts and then I would see what real problems are. And I was like, wow, you know what? The, whatever I'm going through is nothing compared to these people. They would, my worst day is their best day. They would love to be in my position. So it really gave me great perspective to cool my heels of whatever I was going through and enjoy, enjoy my life. And then that made me more grateful. And then the more happy you are, the more you can help other people. So trying to have that connection with the people on the street there and, and then kind of realize too, what you think that is the worst. Sometimes those people living a better life than some millionaires I know. Like, wow, this guy has everything that he owns, he has on his back, but he's super happy. And in my mind, I think he's, he's living a tragic lifestyle, but, and he's really not, he's making the most of his situation and he's super happy. And I'm like, wow, so I don't need a mansion. I don't need this. I don't need that. I just need, you know, a good friend, someone to listen to a meal. And I had to take a step back and really take stock of things like, well, the simple life sometimes is the way to be. We don't, all these other trappings, maybe that's not the way to go. And I don't need all that to make myself happy. If someone that has nothing is one of the most happiest individuals I met all day. So yeah, you, you, you learn a lot out there. You think you own things, but they really own you. That's like been my, yeah. I, I've, I forget when I figured that out, but I'm like, yeah, I, I'm trying to, trying to have a ton of shit. Like, because it all it does is I got to take care of it. Or if it goes away, I got to replace it. <laughs> or if somebody takes it, now I'm going to miss it. And you're like, why, why do I want to go through that when I can be content without, or I got to go buy it. And you're like, do I really want to spend like 40 minutes in a store looking for blank? Like, no, that doesn't seem enjoyable. I'd rather go to the beach and go for a jog. I'd rather connect and enjoy the environment. You know, like that's, I do feel that's a way healthier mindset for people to have. Yeah, to strip it down and just go to the fundamentals, you know, clean, yeah. clean drinking water, roof over your head, yeah. companionship, everything else. I mean, if you do get it, great. Yeah. But if not, like, I'm perfectly content. Yeah. And this is great. And so I've always thought of the majority of homeless people, I'm not, from what I understand, LA has like huge amounts of money poured into supporting them. I always thought it was mostly yes. like a choice. Like it's like a cultural lifestyle. I'm choosing to be on skid row because I want to live this way. Is that yes. kind of incorrect, kind of correct, or it's just different for everybody that you interacted with on skid row? It's, it's definitely a lane of there's people out there that uh, love that pirate lifestyle. I met quite a few and they're like, like, no, I, I want to live by my own code. I don't want to live by society's rules. I'm cool with just a tent and living living, uh, living on a street and they're fully functioning people and capacities of anyone else in the mainstream society. So you have that segment and then you have the segment of people that are completely out of their mind and not where their, their mental capacities aren't there and they're just stuck there. And then you have the people kind of in between you know, the drug addicts that, and uh, alcoholics where if they got their mind right, they would be functioning people, but they're just stuck. 
in that rut of of addiction. So there's there's many different. There's not one. Of, there's not a one size fits all um, solution. That's what makes it so complex. So you know, people think it's a housing. That that's like the current theme out here in L.A. It's a housing issue. It's like, oh no, these people had a lot of them had houses and had families. They just burned through all those opportunities, and now they're stuck here. So. Giving them a house or giving them a place to live is only one part of the solution. They still have to get their mind right. They still got to seek treatment. They still have to work on themselves. And and you, you can't plant that into someone. You can't, you know, you give someone a job. The best thing is that person earns that job or yeah. you someone earns that place to live. That makes it way, way more fulfilling than sustaining. So, I mean, I've had homeless uh, people in my family and, you know, people addicted to alcohol and they had believed they had all those opportunities and they just screwed it up. So very complex issue. And it's, uh, it's very tough to, you know, just throwing money at it isn't going to solve it. it. It goes back to, it's almost like it, it's the end of the equation. It's like a heart surgeon and, you know, we're trying to just fix it during surgery. It's like, no, you got to go upstream in this problem. Why did this person start smoking? Uh. Um, and then, okay, if they start smoking, what else are they doing that's contributing to their to their heart disease? And what happened in the middle of that? And then, of course, the, the surgery is the end point. So everyone keeps on looking at the end point of these solutions. Like, you know, we got to go upstream and fix that first. It's something that I struggle with because, I don't know, if, as a teacher, like, I feel like I'm a decently compassionate person. But I also feel like people don't change unless they're uncomfortable. And I, all I hear about LA is like the weather's awesome, which is part of why you have so many homeless people because it's, it's pretty easy to camp out <laughs> where it's not yeah. like I went to Denver, Colorado, and I was shocked at how many homeless people were there. And then just talking with residents, they were like, yeah, but it never really gets as cold as you think in the winter. Snow goes away. So there's not like a ton of inconvenience for people in the tents. And you're like, oh, well, that makes sense. So for someone to want to seek help, you would think they would have to get to a point of life without help is worse, so let me go get help. But again, like I, as I'm saying that, that seems so negative. It seems like I wanna change your behavior through negative reinforcements. I don't know how you positively reinforce somebody out of skid row. I can only think of negative right. ways to reinforce people out of skid row. Well, it's like, you know, disciplining your children. It's not pretty to spank your kids, but then conversely, letting your kid eat whatever he wants, do whatever he wants, and say whatever he wants is way worse. Yeah. So you have to implement that discipline uh, involuntarily on them to save them. It's almost like saving, saving, saving someone from themselves. Right. So there are these repercussions where you have to imply um, or force your will upon certain segments to save them from themselves. And that's not always pretty. No one wants to spank that kid. No one wants to discipline them and put them in a corner or whatever, you know, whatever the best form of uh, maintaining stability in a child. You don't want to do that. It's the last thing you do. But on the flip side of that coin, it's way worse to let it be a permissive environment where they could do have a free-for-all. And that's what's happening in L.A. It's just a free-for-all. There's no discipline whatsoever. So these people doing as many drugs as they want, acting out as what they want, and they're just destroying themselves. It's actually, it's counterproductive of 
you're doing more harm by, you know, not addressing the situation. People think, oh, no, just we can't arrest them. We can't bring them to a mental hospital. They have to do that on their own. Like, no, you're doing them a disservice. Yeah, it almost seems like to me that the housing thing would be like the, yeah, we're going to sweep it under the rug and try to hide the problem. Let's get it out of public sight. Like, that's how I always took the housing thing. Because again, sure. I'm like, I'm looking at just videos of people on Skid Row and I'm like, like, they're going to maintain a house. They're going to wash their sheets all of a sudden, just because you right. gave them a place to live. They're going to cook for themselves now. I'm like, I don't think they're going right. to start exercising and making sure they're sleeping well. Like it, it never made sense to me that it's an affordable housing issue when you just, I don't know, you could go to Instagram and see homeless people. They are, are they have social media <laughs> and it's like, they don't seem functional in a societal way. They need some help. They need to get their minds right. Absolutely. And you know, talk about, you know, arresting people and putting them in a correctional atmosphere. The, um, you know, the, the correction system's completely broken. And that's a thing we have to look at as well. It's like, okay, that's an alternative. You know, it's your last kind of, your last card that you want to play is to involuntarily take someone's freedom away. But then sometimes you have to do that in order to save them. But then we have to take a real hard look at what our correctional system's like. Are we turning people into productive citizens? Are we really correcting them? Or are we just putting that Band-Aid like a house would be? Like, oh, just stick them in a house. And then now they're off the street, I don't have to see them. Oh, just stick them in jail. Uh, you know, for the next two years, we don't have to see them. Like, no, you know, we have to really correct somebody and put them back on the path. So that system has to be completely overhauled, I think, if we truly want to, you know, solve this problem. Like we want them to go in there, but we want them to come out better. And that's never happened in U.S. You know, prisons and jails. <laughs> yeah, right. And man, I see it in schools where we finally got our own school. And it's a school in Southern Delaware, middle school, 700 kids. We had one counselor who did like scheduling and dealt with crisis for sixth, seventh and eighth grade. And then we finally got our own full-time psychologist. And then we got our outside like therapist, behavioral cognition. Then we got a second counselor. So there's basically four people that can help kids with problems, but it's still 700 kids. So when you start doing the math, it's like, okay, maybe a buck 50 each. Well, there's 188 days. Okay. So you could spend one full school day with each kid. Is that going to change them? <clears throat> like the ratios are so screwed up. And when I try to play out the homeless numbers, I'm like, I look at it as an opportunity. Cause I'm like the amount of middle-class jobs of compassionate people to go and help and get a caseload that would be functional. Wouldn't that be a better use of the money? Like let's create the jobs. I don't know if they get like super, I don't know. I don't know if that's political or idealist, but like I look at it and I'm like, wouldn't that be great to pour that money into these careers where people could help others and you keep the ratio, the numbers low, the caseloads low. Cause that's the mm -hmm. burnout for counselors is like for state people. They're like, I can't see anybody. I've spoken to probation officers. They're like, yeah, dude, I got 250 people on my caseload. I ain't helping nobody. Yes. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, how could you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's just focusing on the, on the solutions instead of the end result on the problem. That's what we, but everyone, you know, in America, we're, we're looking at quick fixes. Everything's, you know, we're on this on-demand generation. All right. I want yeah. something to click a button. All right. I want a problem to go. All right. Just 
you know, raise my taxes and just buy homes. Like, no, you have to, we have to look at the root causes yeah. instead of, uh, instead of just fixing part Z, let's go to a, but I mean, it's even looking at a school atmosphere of like detention. So easy. You screw up in school, you know, send them to detention. I can't think of once where, you know, a, um, a teacher came up to me and said, Hey, you've been in detention a lot. You're getting in trouble. Uh, what's going on? Like, you know, this isn't, um, this isn't, this isn't indicative of who you really are. I could tell that. So is there anything going on at home? What's tell me what's your day like when you go home and just, you know, getting, you know, going the extra step and seeing what's causing this. That's, that never happened to me. And I think that's, that's where we have to look to in society and stop being so, you know, looking for those hacks and looking for that, that instant gratification. How important, like, are you able to have those conversations as a cop with people on Skid Row? Or do you feel, is it bad to build those relationships because then you're almost too compassionate where it could lead to like a safety, your safety being more at risk? Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I've learned from them. I met some, some of the most fantastic individuals on the street and some of the you know, worst individuals. So I just think it makes me a better person to just gain perspective of how this person got, what was their route? What was their origin story? How did they get here? And then when I see those problems in other people, I could address that. So yeah, I'm actually, you know, fascinated by that. Like, how did, how did this happen? You know, someone seems like a good, good human being, but they just got a bad deck of cards and, you know, delving into that history is uh, very fascinating to me. So yeah, I love that part of the job. Because you can only talk about cop stuff with your friends along, hearing the same stories and a lot. Like, no, sometimes I relate more to the people in the streets than my own colleagues. So, uh, really, did you ever like? I don't know if this is stupid, but become friend. Like, you just seem so kind and compassionate. Is it weird to get to know people and then like leave them, or not? It was more like they would leave you. Yeah, befriended a few uh, homeless people in the street, and then just from the aspect of them leading a non living in that non permissive environment, just one day they're not there anymore. Um, just the last one that I knew was this um, gal down in Skid Row. So whatever clothes my girl would have that she was, um, you know, didn't want anymore, I'd find. I, I found her, and we actually had common interest I found her because uh like oh, okay she's kind of the same size of uh as Stacy and I ended up talking to her and I'm like hey real quick do you, do you happen to need any clothes she's like yeah sure I'm like okay uh, I'm like what's your favorite band she's like the Sex Pistols I'm like boom I'm like here's our connection and through music I was like perfect and she's like whoa what's the big deal I'm like it's one of my favorite bands and so we formed that bond so I'd always go and check on her and she uh really had troubles mentally and it was tough to keep her attention for more than 15 minutes and then she'd get go into altered state but we maintained a relationship for a while and then just one day she wasn't there and I, like try to find her in different parts of the city and i don't know um i only knew her first name and uh yeah i hope she didn't get killed or you know whatever i i, I don't know if she went you know found help somewhere i have no idea but it was that was that was tough. Just one day they're not there. So, but you can only do what you can when you can. So, 
Yeah, I'm always looking to find that that common thread to someone that, you know, they look past the uniform or, you know, enforcement aspect of like, no, we we, we do the same thing. We think the same. And, um, yeah, you just got to find that thread within people to make that connection. They don't, like, know their neighbor, like the tent neighbors. Like, oh, yeah, Susie got up and said she was headed to Oklahoma tomorrow. No, she she was very to herself. She, I mean, she's surrounded by people, yes, but she was in her own world and didn't really talk to anyone else. And, uh, yeah, she was just uh, like a lone wolf. Hmm. And But, yeah, some of, some of them, you know, more apt to, you could say, you know, hey, where's so-and-so? And like, oh, yeah, he got arrested last week or whatever. Or, or he got, he's in the hospital or whatever. She was, she was on her own program. So I asked. I asked around. I looked around and no leads whatsoever. So, gotcha. and, uh, yeah, same, same thing with a couple of other individuals I knew. One was really high-functioning, so I think he made it out. And, uh, but I still go back anytime I'm in the air and I go back and look for him and, like, wow, where's Sean? You know, like, I'd love to see him again. So you just don't know. Dude, I can't imagine being a compassionate cop like that. Like, not saying that other cops aren't compassionate, but I guess just speaking to you and hearing the compassion, I'm trying to, like, I know where my students go, right? I, I get in a relationship or an attachment to a kid, and if they don't come, we can call home. You know, we can find it. Or if, like, the, the, their friends know where they're at. Or when they graduate, you're like, oh, you're going to high school. Right. And like, there's this closure to the relationships of the people that I try to help. And it, man, I'm just sitting here with like, listening to you being like, so many of your work interactions with people that you want to help, like their sudden non-closure that would really fuck. Like it would just leave me unsettled. It would really fuck with me. I, w- I was just talking to someone about that today to like, do you ever feel a sense of like uh, hopelessness? Of course you, the caseload never ends. And yeah, you're like, yeah, at a point, you just got to realize you're never going to fix every problem. You're not going to solve every crime. And you just got to come to peace with that. Yeah. And especially, if, you know, you're a type A individual where you have to get these tasks done. You just got to put that out of your mind. Like, I could, for 10 or 12 hours, I'm going to do the best I can and let the chips fall where they may. So you just got to have that faith of, hey, this person I arrested and then gave some advice to maybe 10 years down the road, they will, they will understand why they got arrested and, and they, maybe they hit rock bottom and sought counseling and got them back on their feet. I, I only had a, an encounter with one person that, uh, that I met just haphazardly on the street and that stopped me, um, and told me this success story, but I'm pretty sure there's, there's a handful out there that I just haven't met. Yeah, right. I'm the same like teacher style where you just don't know yeah. your impact. It's do you have any like stupid funny skid row story that you can share? Mm. Put me on the spot. I know, I'm not right? bad with t- <laughs> stupid I, funny. Um, yeah, cuz like sometimes like with teachers yeah, and, I mean there's funny stuff every day that but a lot of it's like dark humor type of things. Right. Um that's funny to me, but I tell tell someone else, and like they're horrified at it. Like, what? You know, it's like my humor is you know completely on the opposite side. Like, I can't watch comedies; it's not funny for me. Like, stuff that's dark is funny for me. Um, but yeah, the day it's it's a constant roller coaster of of emotions, of sadness and happiness, and 
polarity and everything else in between. But yeah, there's some crazy, <laughs> crazy things I've seen. I mean, and I don't mind dark humor. <laughs> if that makes you more comfortable, I wouldn't be, I'm, I probably would be very apt to laugh at dark humor. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to think of like some of the absurd, absurd, there's like a lot of absurd things that I've seen in Skid Row. For some reason, the first thing that pops in my mind when I was uh, a passenger in in, um, in a black and white police vehicle and we're turning down the street and there's an open fire hydrant and there's an extremely morbidly obese woman straddling the, um, the fire hydrant with uh, her feet were like talons. She had both feet on top of it and she had to be at least, you know, three to four bills wearing a muumuu and she had it like lifted about mid chest and the stream of the fire hydrants, you know, full, full force. And she's washing her vagina. So she's got she's holding one hand a muumuu and the other hand, um, using the water to wash her vagina while she's straddling and saying, I couldn't do this, you know, with the best shoes and the best balance I've got in my life. And as I'm turning the corner, I come like face to face with her unbeknownst. And I'm just looking at her in amazement. And my eyes are huge. Like, so I'm like, I can't believe I'm seeing this. And uh, she's like, hey, officer, what's going on? And I just had no words, no comeback, nothing. And it was, she was so happy and jovial and just felt like, you know, like kind of like a kid running in a hydrant in, in water, just that, that elation. But she was cleaning herself and doing it, you know, in a, in a way that uh, I've never seen since. And so you just see the most, you know, some of the craziest, funniest things, um, which... Uh, I mean, you, you wish, looking back at it, you, you know, wish I had it on camera. I was like, just no one could believe it. I was like, I don't know how this woman did this, but she did. And good on her. <laughs> no. no, like, citation for that? Do you even think about, like, hey, man, I need to charge you with something? Or you're just like, too crazy, let's roll? Oh, you no, know, no, you get a pass for that. Yeah. You, could, you could have some kind of physical feat. You know, like, I remember chasing after a guy with a gun, probably his... 16 or 18 years old and he um vaulted over a really high fence and landed kind of like in a superman position but on the ground just smashed himself from probably about like a good eight to ten feet and it was a, like the loudest sound in the world it sounded like a shock i was like bam and it was just his full body um coming in contact with the concrete right and he got up instantly shook it off with like a, one of those like something at a out of a cartoon like like that and then boom he was off to the races doing a 50-yard dash like jesse owens and i was looking at that and i was like you know that that feat that he just overcame and his face was bloody and i just saw him and we could we, i could have probably caught him by you know going you know catching up around i knew where he was running to but i was like you know what i was like brother you, you took that hit like a man you earned your freedom we'll, we'll get you another day i'll i'll find you another day i'll get that gun and I just said, you know, chalked it up to, hey, that's that one's on, the one's on me. You so, <laughs> but you got to respect certain prowess, you know. It's it's a craft like anything else. So, God, that is, it. It's not exactly like teaching, but there are times when like a kid, whatever, gives you the smart eye like comeback, or they do something so stupid in such a clever way that you're <laughs> like, I game respect game, right? Like, I got yeah. you. Yeah, you got to salute. Um, but before we go, can we end with how you, 
got named Nako or how that came about? It's um, my fascination with the movie Jaws. There's a real granular line where that word comes from. And uh, so I uh, made that a part of my email way back when. And then uh, a certain buddy of mine started calling me that. And then it just kind of stuck. It stuck from there and just became a thing. So what's the part in Jaws? What's the reference? It's one of the best scenes in a movie, I think, is when uh, Robert Shaw, who plays Captain Quint, he's in the, the, the boat with uh, Chief and uh, Hooper, and they're just kind of telling tall tales of the tattoos and scars and all that. And he's talking about how he got, um, he's talking about like a headbutting contest in a bar in Boston. We always had an affinity for the city of Boston. And um, it was a Irish name. So every Irishman's dream is to have a bar at one point in their life. <laughs> so I said, wow, I was like, that's a brilliant name. And I, I love it. That'd, that'd be an awesome bar. And it just became the my email address. And then the rest is history. That's That actually would be a really good knockos. Yeah. Would be a really good bar. Um, what was the at for your email address? Were you a Hotmail guy, an AOL guy? Like, how far back are you? Oh, that was, yeah, that was the AOL hell days, I call it. You know, oh. the hell, because, you know, you're, you're hearing a shh, you know, and then someone picks up the phone, you're like, get off the phone! <laughs> Dude, I forgot about that. Yeah. Whole internet was... connection be gone. <laughs> yes, yes. Man, Nako, thank you so much for um, saying yes, being the servant leader. Um, you just... You've made me, selfishly for me, realize, like, I got to get to the West Coast, get this East Coast out of me, man. I'm a, like, it's, it's funny when you talk to positive people, like you're saying, you can realize, like, sometimes just how, I don't think I'm super negative, but, like, I'm definitely more pessimistic than optimistic, man. And I love your vibe. I love your energy. I thank you so much for scheduling um, Overcoming COVID to come on <laughs> and uh, <laughs> let people get to know you, man. I just really appreciate your support. And um, thank you for your service as well as a police officer. I, um, it just, people like you help me go to bed at night. They help me feel safe with my daughter walking around, man. And I really appreciate that as well. Yes. Thank you for those words. And you too provide a service that you'll never know that people that listen to these podcasts, that they never give feedback. They'll, 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 they're, they're watching and they're listening, but you'll never know. Is the, the people that comment, very small. But there's people out there that you're touching, that you're changing, and you're providing the service. You're providing some uh, form of entertainment. That guy that had that hard day at work, but then they put on a good podcast, and that could change the trajectory of their life, like, uh, like mine did from you know becoming buddies with Jocko and uh, my jiu-jitsu instructors. Those just those people that just light a fire in you and you're doing a huge service one through teaching and two through this so good on you much respect keep up the great work it was a true honor to converse with you and if you come out to la hit me up we'll yeah. link up couch surfer remember the old school days of like before airbnb it was just like the couch surfing where you go you take yes. a picture you're like i'm just crashing in different spots yep yeah yep so now that I have that Absolutely. official, you, you will be the couch surfer guy for me. Because <laughs> I think you might be the only, I might know one other person in LA, uh, an ex-girlfriend actually, but I think she's like 
homeless living in a broken down like school bus. So I, I might I might hit you up instead of her. <laughs> the floor is definitely better than a school bus. Doubt. All right, man. Enjoy the rest of your night out there, and um, thank you so much again for coming on. I really appreciate it, Nako. You got it, brother. Appreciate you. Keep, keep the faith. Thank Cheers. You. Thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Search up Andre Psyche on social media. Give him a follow just for the fuck of it. Dear listeners, if you've enjoyed getting to know today's guest or just want to support this upstart podcast, go to our Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, your donation will help with all the costs associated with producing the Getting to Know You pod. Don't forget the three free ways to support the pod. One, subscribe to the Getting to Know You pod. Two, Friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Three, go to Apple, write a review. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide-ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. If you're interested, just message us. See you.